welcome to the Boas 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 podcast with your hosts Keith McPeak, Rob Stone and myself Warren Booth. Tonight we have a great guest Paul Mitzelfeld and we're going to be revisiting the Boas of Madagascar. doing tonight how you doing Warren? i'm good uh, it's been uh, a busy couple of weeks i've had a bunch of reports due uh, and it feels like just when i finish one then the next one appears and it has to be finished immediately so it's been kind of stressful getting those done but i'm, I'm seeing kind of some light at the end of the tunnel which is good you know i've been i haven't been I've, I've truly been ignoring my snakes for the last two or three weeks just popping in checking you know on water um Animals are all paired and they've been breeding heavily, which has been good. But last night was the first night I actually went in to check on everything fully. And I separated everything. I fed everything that would take. And there's a couple of bows that are really right on the edge of, of ovulating. And they didn't feed. You know, I think we've spoke before about, you know, trying to drive animals to that kind of just pushing them past the finish line for ovulation. And sometimes a big meal does that. But two females uh, didn't they? They're swollen already, but they're they're not ovulating. But they're right at that end of that pre-ovulation phase. So I think they're just going to push into ovulation probably in the next week. Right. But a couple of a couple of others, like a couple of hog islands and stuff, um, took very large meals. And then I, I might even pair some emeralds this year. I, I I thought about not pairing my anaconda phase emeralds after the story I told in our last episode about the respiratory infections that they picked up but they cleared up really quickly and they're slamming you know large adult rats and medium rats so i'm thinking maybe in march i might i might put them together because whenever i put them together in the past they um in november december they've done nothing they haven't really looked at each other so i'm wondering are they on a later cycle you know they are wild caught they're they've been with me for nearly three and a half years so maybe they're on a slightly different cycle so i'll try them in march and see where they go. And then other than that, I've just been assist feeding Trinidad Triboa babies, which has been a complete pain in the ass. But uh, there we go. How about you? Uh, yeah, so like we were discussing before the show, you know, weather's up and down all over the place. But I, I think I'm in the kind of the same realm you are. I think things are building and I'm getting close to ovulations with a lot of stuff, including some of the pythons. So, yeah, it looks to be an interesting year for me. Uh, so Great. Definitely, yeah. I did, you, I did do one other thing. I'll okay. tell you and drop really quickly. I did do one thing after our last episode when you talked about Guiana boas. Uh-huh. I uh, I picked up a trio of, of <laughs> a reverse trio of, of Guiana boas. So they're coming in the next month or so. Oh, nice. And I, and I blame you entirely for that there, Keith. So, yeah, Good you're deal. warned. <laughs> what about you, Rob? How's everything going with you? Oh, all good. Nothing. Uh, no change on my end from the last episode, you know, mostly the spring breeder stuff on my end. Um, right, right. Yeah, cool. All right, so tonight we have a guest uh, who now I consider a very close friend, but I met Paul, uh, I'm going to say, I don't know, 2017, 2018, and I was walking the Tinley Show, and I go by a table, and, and I see these, like, insane Madagascar ground bows, you know, a, a young pair and they're just like insane, like the nicest ones I've ever seen. And like, I couldn't get those animals off my, my brain, you know? So I tracked Paul down after the show and he graciously did a very generous on his part deal trade with me. And I got these boas 
And then it went downhill for me from there because <laughs> I was bitten by the emerald tree boa bug and I made the biggest mistake of my life when it came to snake deals and I sold that pair in order to get an emerald that I really, really wanted. And like literally like two days after I got rid of him, I was telling Paul, man, I think I made a mistake. And uh, since then, our friendship has really grown. And, you know, you meet these people along the way where when you're talking to them, you're either answering a lot of questions or you're asking a lot of questions. And Paul is definitely somebody that when we have a conversation, I'm asking a lot of questions. So I have a lot of respect for him. Um, so here he is, Paul Mitzelfeld. How you doing, Paul? Good. I, I, so uh, tonight we, good. Wanted to, we wanted to talk about um, Madagascar boas because I know you dabble with a lot of things, but I know the Madagascar boas are, are definitely something that um, are really in your wheelhouse and something that, you know, you've spent a lot of years um, working with. So I was just curious maybe to kick off the show, maybe you could tell us what it is about the Madagascar boas that really draw you to them. Oh, it's hard to put my finger on one thing. It was, I think back, I was 14 or 15. I went to a small pet shop. I went down the basement. They had numerals in there. They were $1,100 each. I just don't know. Well, I don't know why. I, just, I think it was mostly the head pattern at the time. It really my eye. And couldn't afford $2,200 page. I started digging them. I found a guy last name. Florence. It was breaking back. Lee Watson era. They were 350 bucks a piece. I trip up there, got some of those, and it just fell from there. That, that was your first experience with the Madagascar and any Madagascar bows, then I assume? Yeah. 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 Back then, you never saw them around any, anywhere. But. So, so was the Doom Rules eventually the first bow, the first Madagascar bows that you kept? Yep, and then years later, uh, Rebecca Berker, she had a Madagascan ground bow nail she was selling. I decided to pick that up. And then from there, you got to have a female and try and everything you can avail, which was even hard back then. And just start building a group. And saying Zinnia, that's not strange. I'd see them in the past, like back in 2000. And the legal scales were something that actually turned me from the back in the day. And now. Now I really like their head structure, but back then, for some reason, it just kind of, like that, that doesn't look like a normal boa. It's not something I want to work with. Like how I love it. It's a really cool head structure. Yeah, it's definitely unique. That's interesting. You know, whenever, like the, the Sanzinia head structure is so different than any of the other boas. Even whenever you look at, you know, other tree dwellers, you know, emeralds, you know, with the big pits, the Amazons with the big pits, the, the Sanzinia are so different because the, the length, you know, the kind of the very deep kind of long kind of pits along the side of the mouth. And I've spoken to so many people because I think they're phenomenal. And I've spoken to so many people that find them ugly because of that, you know, and it's, uh, and then interestingly, just like yourself, a number of years later, I, I get an email and they're like, oh, these are the most amazing things on the planet. And I was like, yeah, you should have thought that. 10 years ago, whenever you could get them for a reasonable price, <laughs> you know, now they're yes. just they're, they're yes. through the roof. So Paul, I thought we would start with the Doomerals boas and just see like generally how you keep them. 
Uh, Warren and myself and Rob have talked about the boas of Madagascar in the past, but I like to, you know, we all like to get different people on here and, and see the way they do things. And, and it helps us all just become better keepers, take a little bit from this keeper and a little bit from that keeper. And, you know, we all grow and, and, and learn things. So let's start with the Doomrolls boas and just, you know, find out how you find them as captives and how you keep them. And I think as far as captives are very easy, very forgiving. As long as you don't keep them too long, you're going to be pretty well set. I use paper generally. Every now and then I get bored of it. I'll go to mulch and they just destroy the cages. So for me, it's just easier to use paper, water bowl, for certain animals, a hide. Otherwise, they're very basic kept. I use radiant heat panels on some of them. I prefer belly heat. I like a hot spot of around 88. But that's keeping in mind the room ambient is going to be 68 to 72. Uh, if my room was around 80, I'd probably back my hot spot down just because, in my opinion, the cage is going to be overall too hot. Uh, they're easy to feed. A lot of people have problems with them. I think that's just getting them established from the get go. Mm -hmm. So you said you mentioned belly heat, and you and I have talked about that. Could you kind of elaborate on why you like the belly heat? Uh, for breeding, I really prefer it, but in general, uh, they just seem to do better. They can just lay on the heat instead of having to get up to it and bask. And then when you do use the radiant heat panels. I'll try to stagger my females according to where they're at back. So they're actually getting the belly heat from the heat panel below them. Because one year when I first tried radiant heat panels, I had the females higher up. So they weren't getting the belly heat. And I completely slugged out that year. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, that was like 15 years or so into breeding them. And it was pretty much like clockwork. Switched over and just everything went bad. Kind of so like what the Argentine. Yeah, so what what size are your females whenever you're breeding them? They range. I have some that are four and a half feet, some that are closer to eight feet. Wow. You know, the reason I say that is that there was a paper a number of years ago by Graham Reynolds that looked at, you know, how the boas and the pythons are related to each other genetically. And when you look at the Madagascan boas, you know, there's a clear split for um, Voluntani and Madagascariensis. But whenever you get into the Ankrotophis, you know, you see a Dumerals and a Madagascariensis split, but then from basal to that, so before that, you get another group that was a Dumerals that was sequenced, and it's totally different than the Madagascan and the Dumerals, so that actually sits in a different group. So I'm, I'm wondering, are Dumerals actually two species? Is is that the one they found, like, way in the south? I'm not sure. You know, I need to – we're going to have – yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, we're going to have Graham Reynolds on as a guest at some point. Um, and I need to go back to that paper, but it just, I, I recall it just sitting really distant um, from, from you know, I would expect the Doomerals, if you had multiple Doomerals that were sequenced, they're at least going to be sitting side by side, almost very comparable sequences. But in this case, the, there's the Doomerals, and then the most closely related to that is a Madagascariensis. And then from that group backwards, the most related to that is another Doomeral sample. Um, I need to go back to the to the paper to find out where that sample was derived. But you know, the reason I ask, you know, that suggests two species, um, or that the Dumerals, there's a Dumerals boa and something other, some other Madagascan boa that has yet to be named. 
that looks like a Doom Reynolds. But also whenever I, I see, I think it was, um, is it Mike Beach um, has had these dwarf line Doom Reynolds that he's advertised for a number of years. Uh, and I hear people talk about these small Doom Reynolds that are four to four and a half feet. And on the other hand, I hear people talking about seven and eight feet Doom Reynolds. You know, it's a massive size difference. You know, we see things equivalent to that when, whenever we look at Boa Imperator and Boa Sigma. We see large differences in size of boas, but that's often locality related. And we can look back and that's they're genetically differentiated. So I was just curious, you know, at the range that you're seeing, and clearly you're seeing a, quite a distinct range as well. Do, do, so to elaborate on that then, if you have your four foot and your eight foot dumerals, mm-hmm. are they from the same lineage? Are these animals that you've produced over a number of years and raised up? And it looks, for example, could they be litter mates or are these from distinct lines? It's a little bit of both. Um, I do have siblings that I can feed completely different and hit different lengths easily. Uh, I believe Beach's animals came from Tom Prado, which came from me. And that whole story was Kevin Hanley back around 2000, 2001, was selling a group of five Dumerals he said were imported by Gordon Shewitt. As far as I know, Gordon Shewitt says he's never imported Dumerals. I'll, so yeah. I'll ask him. He's one yeah. of my best friends. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think yeah. he has. So the story's yeah. a little iffy on that. Yeah. But yeah. I bought those animals, and they were supposed to be sh- Swedish bloodline. The grandparents were almost eight feet, very aggressive. Mm. Then their, their offspring were around six feet. I bred those, and their offspring, I started being able to breed them around four and a half feet. So when I sold them, I, I wrote something up like, these are capable of breeding around four and a half feet. It's not max size. Mm-hmm. So I think... Things sort of got lost in translation, and now it almost seems like people are feeding them subconsciously to hit that number. Right. Where if you fed them differently, you could probably exceed that size. Right. Level. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems if you feed small mills very often, you're going to get a long lean animal. If you beat them up and throw a big meal to them once a month, something like when you first feed them, you go, ooh, might have been too big. They're going to grow big, and they're going to grow mm. quick. Oh, wow. But and I think that's why we used to see eight-foot animals, and they don't breed very well. But people feed them like normal boas, mm-hmm. and they feed them large meals very often, and they would just blow up. Right. Interesting. Yeah, there was one in, oh, uh, it, there was one in Tulsa Zoo, and it was, uh, it was definitely like a seven-foot animal. It was really impressive. Yeah, you can make big ones. I've, I've always found that they're terrible breeders though right yeah we see that a lot in you know even in other species whenever you see the the real giants in a lineage they tend to not do very well whether it's a human or whether it's a a snake you know they they whenever they're way above the the standard size range that we expect they tend to not do very well at all yeah i would never try to raise one to get big and expect big years mm-hmm. i've heard those people that i have an eight foot female she had 25 babies yeah. I don't believe it. Yeah. I'm sure people have had large litters, but it's not typical. Yeah, I, I had a friend back in, in England, in London, and he had a very large locality boa collection. I've mentioned him before, you know, he had boa nebulosa and boa rofius, but he also had, um, uh, he had, I can't remember if he had dumerals, but he had sanzinia uh, volantini, and the pair that he had were 
easily eight feet easily eight feet long um and you know as thick as your bicep they're absolutely enormous but he never to my knowledge they never bred for him so it just ties into that you know large uh, overweight animals just don't do well yeah john barry got a large pair from bob fudo and they've never done well mm. but they're big yeah like, i think my average western is maybe six foot yeah yeah so with, with, when you're when, you, when you've got these numerals, the what, what are you seeing in terms of litter size? Because you know if you're seeing a, a size range from four and a half to seven or eight feet, are you seeing a large difference in either the size of the babies that are produced or the numbers of babies that are produced? Well, that's one thing that on the smaller size, when they breed, I guess six to eight babies, but they're the same size as a female that was seven foot, huh. and a seven foot female might give me twelve to fourteen. All right. Wow. That's really cool. That's one thing when people were selling dwarf babies, yeah, you know, like what was what was the wittier babies? Because in my experience, they're kind of the same size. Yeah. Whether they come from four and a half foot or six foot. Yeah, that you know that's that's interesting because we often see, you know, some of these dwarf dwarf lineages. You look at boa sigma, the the, the Mexican boas um, from the the Pacific side. Uh, you know, like Sonorans and so on, the babies that they produce are half the size of Nicaraguan Imperator. You know, the females could be the exact same size, but the babies are dramatically different. Um, so it's interesting that in this case, you know, between a, a large female and, and, and these smaller ones, and this dwarf lineage versus the normal, you're not seeing any size variation. Because uh, I would expect no. to see, you know, in a, in a true dwarf lineage, I would expect to see smaller babies and smaller numbers in general. Yeah, something that would look, look like a runt. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And while we're on doom rolls, I got, we could talk about the hypo. I yes, I, produced. I was going to ask that. about it because I I was talking to someone in Europe um, relatively recently about um, hypomelanistic, and also I recall was there something about a like a T positive albino, or or was that yeah. the hypo they were talking about? Oh, there's a T positive. Is I think it's hold. Mog in Germany that produced it back in 1998. He, he named it Rosa, if you want to Google it and find it. But as far as I know, they'd, they've never done real well. Uh, there's a guy, and I think he's in England, that's breeding them, and they're not doing really well for him. Hmm. And then there's the hypos, which is like Keith, they just kind of pop up. And they generally seem to think Keith's were strong and do well. Yeah, I, I sold them to a guy in Florida, and uh, he he raised them and produced them, but I kind of lost track on what happened with that project. So there was a few back in around 2004 that were popping up, and as far as I know, they've all died from respiratory infection after the years, and none of them bred. My original, the, that Swedish linebacker, Kevin Hanley, had produced one, and that was sold to Jason Swigert. Back then, if you remember, just dooms back around two thousand three. Yeah, yeah. He, he bought her. I don't think she ever produced, but I actually produced some from her siblings. So at the time, I, well, maybe it's a resuscitate. Every time I produced one from the siblings, it had a kink neck or a stubby face. Something was always wrong. So eventually, I just decided to sell off the entire group one by one across the country. So nobody was getting pairs of them. Hmm. It just seems like a like weak gene. And then 
Ron Smith had one produced with his Eastern Tanzania. It was it was a gorgeous animal, but it didn't last either. Yeah, I just found a picture. I just searched the uh, albino caramel albino uh, deposit of dumerals and found an old picture that came up from two thousand and eight on kingsnake.com forums. Uh, it's that's impressive. Uh, she, she was producing eight, but yeah, from tigers, pythons. Oh, it's, it's been a long time for how few we see. Yeah, that's a pity because that's a very that's a very pretty animal. Oh yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah, I tried actually import some of them. That was a big scene, but because in CITES there is rules if the exporting country deems appendix one as capital bred, you don't need an import permit. You just need the export permit. So Bond Germany permit and U.S. Fish and Wildlife still said they're wrong. That's not the rule. Uh, they have to come from a breeding facility, and Europe didn't adopt that little rule, so they don't exist. Oh, you man. won't find a facility. You know, it's it's weird. You know, I, I the reason I never got into Doomworlds whenever I lived in Ireland was in the UK was the that if you bred them, well, all animals had to be microchipped, so you had to have CITES paperwork for each animal you produced, um, and and yet they were they were not selling for much money. You know, they were selling for a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars. You know, this is maybe 20 years ago. Um, so the expense and the hassle you would have to go through to get the microchip and to get all of the CITES paperwork and everything required, it just wasn't worth buying them and breeding them. Um, it's uh, which is a pity because there's some, some beautiful animals throughout Europe as well. And also I'm glad I didn't because in the end, I had Sanzinia back in, in Ireland, and whenever I moved to the U.S., I couldn't bring them with me, right, because I, I couldn't export them. Yeah, I know there's a little piece in there, too. If you're relocating, you're supposed to be able to bring them with you. But I don't know if U.S. Fish and Wildlife would let you. No, they were having none of it. Yeah, I have heard, I don't know them personally, that someone has imported Eastern Sanzinia. Yeah, Somebody I heard that myself. Gonna, yeah. But... So, and, and there, there is ways. Yeah, there there are ways to do it. It's just it's just a, a major amount of paperwork and hassle, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there is a, a expensive backside. Yeah, indeed. So 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 to go back to the albinos, then so it, they did they've produced multiple of them, but they just don't do they just don't survive. They don't do well. I guess they they just don't do very well. Yeah, that's a pity. And it's uh, Henry Blog is the one in, I think, England that's breeding them. Okay. I'll have to look, at, look him up. So is, is he producing them from hats or is he producing them? Does he have adults? Uh, he has visuals, yeah, and adults yeah. now. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I know that He's with things like blackheads, the, yeah, the, the albino blackhead pythons, you know, they tend to not do very well, but there are people that have adults, you know, so... Clearly, there are there are animals that are surviving to adulthood, um, so maybe that's a line that they can recover. You know, one thing I haven't looked at, and maybe I should in my as I potter around the lab. You know, it'd be nice to sequence uh, a whole bunch of captive dumerals to see how much genetic variation is within the population. There's probably not a lot, um, and that obviously can lead to deleterious mutations that are just hitchhiking along with the albino gene that could result in, in that crashing. So maybe if you can get an animal that luckily doesn't have that. And you can raise it up. You might be able to find the lineage because 
you know, as far as I know, T-positive albinos and, and other species don't show any any fitness effects. You know, they tend to do pretty well. So hopefully, hopefully in time they'll be able to uh, to do something with that. Of course, it'll be very difficult for us to get them over here to the U.S. But there are yeah. it'd be nice to see that that uh, that line um, uh, at least established because it is a really pretty snake. Yeah. Has there ever? Uh, sorry to interrupt you there, Warren. But along those lines, Paul, what is the deal with the tail tip on most captive doomerals? Oh, the, that little hook? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see it a lot, but I mean, I've seen it at shows quite a bit. I really don't know. Do you remember back early 2000s, there was a small eye syndrome? They were calling it with the doomerals? Yeah, yeah. And I haven't seen that in years either. But. Yeah. Yeah, the, the tail tip thing I, it was big, uh, I'm going to say, in the mid-90s. Um, it, it seemed like every every snake out there almost had it. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of doomerals around at the time, really. But, like, when you went to Daytona or any of the big shows and you're checking out the babies to pick them out for purchase, they, you know, they always seemed to have that. And, and there was something, I can't remember exactly what it was with the scales on the chin. Oh, the clear patch. A clear patch on the chin. Yeah, yeah there's the clear patch. The basically you can ID your doom rolls with the chin patch. They call it. If you go to the doom rolls boas lovers page on Facebook, they have an entire folder of pictures. Really? And some people think it's a type of inbreeding. And I'm pretty sure Bill Love has confirmed it's like that in the wild as well. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that on other snakes as well. You see it, um, you know, like a little white patch. Um, on leopard boas, uh, you see it on the Costa Rican black boa, which is a locality form of the leopard, but from Costa Rica. You see it on the onyx boa, which is a locality Honduran form of the leopard boa. They all exhibit this. Um, I think you might even see it in some motley boas. So it's, it's likely just to be a um, a natural variant. Yeah. Cool. But They're the tail tip, I, I've seen the tail tip on other animals. So I, I've seen that little tail tip kind of peaked up um, on on a bunch of other animals in captivity um, that is probably that's probably through inbreeding effects you know you see it on some lines that are very long term and where they haven't been outbred didn't Harding used to produce a ton of doomerals that were available on the market yeah so maybe if it was coming from him and just supplying enough people I don't I don't want to knock his stock because I've never seen it on a Harding animal but you know, if one guy was supplying and his line was doing that. Yeah. It's very possible. Yeah. I mean, numerals have never been so popular where you're, I used to give more away than I could sell. So if somebody was wholesaling them out, they probably last of the while on the market. And that's why the current market's a little crazy. $800. <laughs> I was just people, about to say that. <laughs> people get interested in numerals every year, January, February. No babies are available. Yeah, and then by the time August rolls around, they they've lost complete interest, or they pick one up, and two to six months later, they're trying to sell it because they're bored, because yeah. they're not exciting. They're not going to entertain you. They're they're almost like a ball python in a cage. They're not doing a lot. It's. I was and chatting to someone. I was chatting to someone earlier in this year about, or earlier last year, about that. You know, seeing them for eight or nine hundred dollars all, all of a sudden. And um, and it reminded me of Brazilian rainbow boas and hog island boas in the UK about 25 years ago, 20 years ago. 
people would breed them out the wazoo so you get all of this you know abundance of them that they couldn't sell so the prices crash and nobody wants to breed them and then three years later people are are begging for brazilian rainbow and hog islands and doomerals because no one's got them and the prices skyrocket and they go up to 800 or a thousand dollars just like we're seeing here because um, yeah. yeah looking on some of the on some of the, the websites you know you see 2023 doomerals for 900 dollars each and then you look across and you see 2023 doomerals for 325 dollars you know so the, yeah. the the price is all over the board for them i checked morph market earlier there was 45 ads yeah. from 400 dollars yeah. $800. Yeah. That's it's crazy. Pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Give it another Most two those, years. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've seen them when they were $85 and you were taken home. Right. Yeah. It's a pity, a pity. Cause I actually would like to get some, but I'm not spending $800. <laughs> no, I just hold off. Yeah. That's what I'll do. I'll just wait for a bit. I'm, I'm scared to breathe because I'm going to end up holding on, you know, 30 baby doom rolls. The price right. is just going to crash, and everybody's trying to get that money breeding them. Yeah, and given the size of them as babies, they're eating larger meals that are more expensive. Yeah, yeah. they are. They are pretty snakes, but there's some. Just looking on on Morph Market, there are some really pretty doomerals. Yeah, and then I mean, there's a lot you can do just with the natural variation. Everybody wants morphs. It seems like if you really wanted to get into them and just pick a nice pair and just start work, work towards line breeding them, trying to improve. And you can do a lot. If, if you look at the ads, you can tell there's a lot of variation. There really is, you know, like I'm looking at them now and there's some that have got like a lot of green color in them, like a, like a, a, a darkish kind of forest green. There's some that are high pink. There's ones that have got yellow coming through. You really could take a project like that and work at whatever angle you want. There's so much variation. Which is kind of interesting given, you know, I'd love to know how much, as I said earlier, I'd love to know how much genetic variation is within the population of captive drumrolls in the U.S. But there's a lot of color variation that you can play with. Yeah. Is that locality naturally, you know, that came in years yeah. ago? So do, do you know, when, you, I'm sure you do know, when was the last time drumrolls were imported into the U.S.? I, from I from the wild? Years. The other day, I think Rob has more information on that than I would have. Okay. I, I would guess in the late seventies, but I'm not sure. It's one of those things where like, eh, it doesn't really matter to me what, what year I find out. I just know now I can't get them. Yeah. So why dig deep? But I think it was in the seventies, but like I said, Rob seems to have a lot of information on that. So that was the last time you think they were imported in the seventies, late seventies? Legally. Yeah. Wow, I think legally. That's amazing. You know, I would have thought it would have been later into the eighties or nineties, but that's, that's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Are you there, Rob? I mean, Do you remember know? that we were from nine animals imported years ago, but I think there was more than that. Rob, do you have the numbers on that at all that you could look? Yeah, I'll pull it up. I don't have, I don't, uh, I don't remember offhand, so I'll pull it up. Now, if you want to see variation, you can pull up Ashley Andre Check out her numerals. She has a little bit of everything. Yeah, I was telling Warren we have to have her on the show at some point because she does have a, a really nice collection of numerals. Oh, I saw the picture. I think maybe you sent a link to me. I saw yeah. the uh, the pictures of the um, it's the side pattern variation that, that she yeah. posted. Yeah, really beautiful. Yeah, they really are a really underappreciated boa. When you think about it, you know, like they, they don't get like eight foot, right? So they're, 
even if you're going to get a big one like that there, a Colombian boa gets to that size. But if it's more likely to sit around the four and a half or five foot, you know, you're closer to like a, a boa amorali in terms of its adult size. And they get stocky enough where they're, you know, they're not a, a runty kind of little thin snake. They're they're a really pretty snake. But as you say, if they're if they're relatively boring captives, if they act, you know, in that kind of ball python pet rock phase, then maybe pe- people don't want that. But um, and I suppose thinking about it, when I see them in zoo exhibits, and I see them frequently in zoo exhibits, they're always sitting, you know, camouflaged under the leaves. Whereas the other boas, whether they're Jamaican boas or boa constrictors or whatever, are always out and about kind of doing something. So maybe just they are a lot more, a lot more sedate, a lot more sessile, and so they're not moving around much. And therefore that detracts from their popularity from people, which is a pity because, as I say, I think they're, they're fantastic looking animals. And the more I'm looking at this page, the more I'm wanting to, to get some. <laughs> <laughs> they're beautiful animals. They just, if you want to hold your, your pet snake and watch TV, yeah. they'd be grateful. Right. I mean, they're naturally non-aggressive. People talk about how often to hold your animals. I, I can feed one, clean its cage for three years, and just decide I'm going to hold this animal today, and it's fine. They're, wow. You don't have to handle them every day. You can leave them be, and they're fine. Yeah, a friend of mine used to use them for educational purposes just for that because they, it's a lot of snake in a smaller package, kind of like a blood python or like you say a uh, Amarilli and he used to use them for shows and people loved them, you know? Yeah. They're very eye catching. And he used to, the rosette on the back. Yeah. It seems like 20 years ago, they were very consistent all the way down the back. It looked like flowers. Be sexist, but women tend to like that pattern, you know, oh, look at the flower back. And, right. But they are a beautiful animal. You just, you're not going to sit back and watch them at night. Like you would a chondro, you know, when they get active, even with Sanzinia, I find around 11 o'clock at night, they start moving around. Yeah. Duels really don't. They don't do a lot. Interesting. So uh, how do you keep yours in terms of feeding? Are you feeding them? Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier that there are different ways to get them to different sizes. What What is your, um, what is your recipe? Um, if it's some babies, I'm eventually just going to sell. I'll just feed them. Start with a, a rat pup. Feed them weekly, nothing huge, just a nice size meal. Something you can barely see when you just feed them every week. Uh, once they're getting bigger, like my adults, once a month, a large rat. And if they start, you can, and they'll get obese easily. If you start to see them getting obese, just back it off. So very, very like blood pythons then, very like short tail pythons that they can rapidly put on weight and become obese within a, within a, a small number of meals. Yeah. Yeah, they're not hard to blow up. Are they hard to breed? No, not at all. Um, it kind of varies, you know, because we all have a different situation we're in. If you're in the Midwest and you keep them in your basement, it's probably not going to be hard at all. If you're southern Florida, keeping them on, you know, your your slab home, you might have a little difficulty because I think you, know, you got to drop them down a little bit at night. You don't have to cool them into the forties. If you drop down into the sixties, let them cool, let it come back up pretty naturally during the day. You'll be all right. They'll breed. Hmm. Uh, it just depends on your own setup. And what's the, uh, what's the gestation time on them? Have you from, from ovulation? <clears throat> from ovulation or it's around five months. 
And I, wow. a lot of people still say nine months. And I wrote up this whole thing 25 years ago. It's around five months. I put it on the Dumeril's Boa's Lovers page. Here's the snake population. 150 days later, I was posting her babies. Yeah, I think I think maybe we've talked about this before on the show, but I think a lot of these times where we see these very very long uh, gestations um, that people have potentially mistaken uh, the pre-ovulation for an actual ovulation, um, because I've had you know I've had boas, not Madagascan boas, but I've had Mexican boas that have sat in that kind of pre-ovulation phase for a long time, for months, in fact swelling and then then finally they ovulate and if you aren't there looking at these animals every day it would be very easy to miss that ovulation and therefore thinking that pre-ovulation swell early on that was prolonged was actually ovulation and and and, and development of babies so therefore you know the 120 something days of, of boa sigma you know you might be able you might think that that was actually 160 or 170 because of that prolonged time of the pre-ovulation yeah I, I figure people are just missing, or like you said, mistaken a pre-ov. Like, well, that's it. He's mm-hmm. gravid. So do, do the babies, you know, because I, I know that with Sanzinia, and I've seen it this year with um, with Trinidad Trebo, is whenever, as soon as the babies are born, they will shed. Does, mm-hmm. do, do, do Dumerals do the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, they come out pretty much shedding immediately. And are they then ready to eat, or are they still, you know, you hold back for a, a couple of weeks, or... I think uh, what the do do? earliest I've gotten them to feed is like four days after birth. Right. But if, if they come out and you can tell their belly's full, I don't even try for a couple yeah. of weeks. And then they they readily take rodents or do they do they need a little bit of work with scenting with lizards or, or frogs? I've or? never had a problem using rodents. Hmm. I think the issue some people have is they try too small of a rodent and they're, they're not interested. So if yeah. you bump it up a little bit, that'll get their attention. Mm-hmm. I haven't had to use quail. A lot of people have, and you know, the swear by. It. So, for having a problem, I'd try a quail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they are. Star. Yeah, yeah, they are large babies. So you know, it suggests that um, you know they're eating birds or mammals as their first meals. You know, it's not like um, you know some of these tree boas or even you know many colubrids where the size really does determine or depict that they're, they're going to be eating lizards or frogs. You know, when you look at a Dumeril's boa, they come out pretty chunky. Um, so they're ready to eat bigger meals straight away. Years ago, I, I kept paying for chameleons also. And it, it sounds bad, but I'm like, well, let's see if there's a natural, they're going to eat panther chameleons. There is no at all. So, wow. Let's put that out there. That, that, I don't uh, think they're huge <laughs> Eaters, but yeah, that, that could have been a, an expensive to, project to, to raise your doom rules. You've got to also have a breeding colony of panther chameleons. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had to see, you know, are in the wild do they naturally go after chameleons? But from what I saw, they don't. Interesting, very good. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So, uh, Warren, maybe or and Paul, you want to dive into the Madagascar ground bows? Sure. They're not a lot different from my experience. I, I think you got to keep them a little cooler and a little more humid. They're a lot more wiry to handle. They don't settle down as much. But overall, they're kind of the same snake with slightly different requirements. But they're bigger, right? 
Yeah, they get bigger, longer. The babies are huge. And they're a little more difficult to breed. And I think yeah. it's, we got to figure out the timing of everything. Right. You know, I've, um, I've spoken to Bill Hughes quite a bit uh, about, about um, the ground boas. And, you know, he's had trouble with them in terms of, you know, it looks like they might be breeding uh, or might be gestating and they're not. Um, uh, I've got a, a friend at Knoxville Zoo who's got a, a large pair that, that he thought was gravid and it turned out not to be. And I think you're right. I think the timing, I think the timing in general for Madagascan boas is a big thing. Um, and I wonder, because I've said this before, that, that boas, unlike pythons, are not very good at storing sperm. And I'm curious if they've been paired too early in the season. Because snakes, they're not making they're not making sperm continually like mammals. They're making it at one point in the year. And once that's gone, it's gone. And if they can't store sperm effectively, then and they mate females and they deposit sperm early in the season, that sperm could be dead or or could be on its way out before that female actually even ovulates. And therefore, you're going to get um, either deformed babies or high slug counts or even nothing at all. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned seasonal issues, and I, I think that could be a really important aspect. So have people played around with ultrasound to try and determine when females are right on that point close to ovulation? I don't have an ultrasound. I've ultrasounded some friends out for uh, to palpate. I just did that. Yeah. One time you had told me you thought Sandinia were spring ovulators, I believe, on the warm up warm. I think you had told Bill something like that. Yeah, I was curious, you know, are. Yeah, I was curious, are they, you know, because I think I was only recently, Bill and I were talking about that because, um, you know, he's got these pairs that are together and they're breeding. As soon as he puts them together, they breed but it might not necessarily result in an offspring uh, and I'm and I, or, or it might result in a small litter. Uh, and, and Keith, we talked about this on the last episode, I think at the, uh, when we yeah. talked, chatted and I'm just curious about that timing. You know, I, I, you know, I've done a bunch of work on sperm storage in snakes over the last number of years. And, and I, and I've seen it in boas in my own kind of collection at home. If they breed too early prior to ovulation, it tends to result in a pretty weak or poor litter. And I'm just curious about that timing for the ovulation for the females. And, and are we putting animals together too early in the, in the cool down period? Um, and therefore, you know, losing, you know, that they'll breed away straight away and they'll deposit the sperm, but that just is um, dying as you wait for the female to ovulate. So I'm, I'm, I am curious about this, um, the, 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 the time at which they do ovulate and is it later in the season than we think? Yeah, I, I think you're like right on, right on path. So I, I can palpate follicles in October and then mm-hmm. I'm not getting ovulation until March. So it's, it's a six month process. We don't need to put the males in in October. In my opinion, you just, you were yeah. burning them out and yeah. you told Bill that, you know, I on the warm up, you're going to get ovulation. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't warm up until I see ovulation because I don't want to kill the sperm. Right. But a couple of years ago, spring was late coming in. I, I kept warming my room up. I could palpate. The follicles were huge. Like they need to ovulate. But they would not go. They would not ovulate no matter what I did artificially. My males lost all interest. Two or three weeks later, spring actually hit outside. Everybody ovulated. The Easterns all slugged out. The Westerns still had fertile babies. But mm-hmm. I think just 
holding on to it until spring actually kicked in. It just didn't work out. So I got to try to figure out how do I time it better. Two years ago, I took a couple male westerns that were off to the side, hadn't been cooled, pop sperm. So I signed Within four days, I had sperm. So now I'm thinking, I don't have to worry about these males till January or February. Then I can cycle them. I got sperm. They're fresh. They're going to be into it, you know, mm-hmm. until March. But I definitely think we, we pair them for too long. And we could probably learn a lot over time from ball python breeders. They're getting one or two locks, and they get a good clutch. It's all we need. 50 locks. Yeah. Yeah. We get 50 locks over six months, and we get terrible results. Yeah, because I, you know, I can guarantee you that in the wild, these these animals are not sticking together for that length of time. You know, you see it in other species of boas where they will mate guard females, or at least they'll they'll have these group mating events. But they breed and then they dis- dissipate. They don't hang around a long time, and the females ovulate or assume they ovulate pretty soon after that. I, I think this. I, I do honestly believe that it's just they're in too long. They're using up the sperm stored that they had that they produced that year and the female's not ovulating and, and because boas just seem to be terrible at storing sperm, which is really interesting because, you know, many pythons can store sperm for years. And I mentioned in our last episode that rattlesnakes can store sperm for seven years um, and use it and produce really healthy offspring. But boas just do not seem to be good at it at all. And what's even interesting is that the Dumeril's boas are from a different lineage than the boas. They've got different sex chromosomes. They, you know, they're totally different than than the boa sigma, the boa imperator, all that group. They, you know, when people talk about the potential to hybridize them with rainbow boas and anacondas, and that will never happen. They've got totally different sex chromosomes that won't work. Um, so they are just a really unique lineage um, of animals on their own. And I think, you know, what I should do, I should, I've got, I've got friends that, that go to Madagascar a lot to, um, to do um, uh, reptile studies, reptile surveys. I should ask them. Are they ever coming across um, dumerals that are breeding and or basking, and when and if they are, when that is? Because um, it's probably, yeah, probably later in the season. The July is the coldest month there, all around. So I, I they're probably breeding and start to warm up. Yeah, found in February, so it goes with the timeline. So I definitely think they're ovulating come the warm up. It's just getting that timing right in captivity. And it's, you can it's, tell me that this would work. <laughs> you, you have the science degrees. If I took sperm, put it on a slide, and slowly elevated the temperature, could I find the point at which it dies? Uh, potentially, yeah. Uh, potentially, if the sperm is, is active and healthy whenever you do that, and you're doing it within a short period of time, and you're just looking at a um, yet at time to death or time to inactivity, so you, you, you could theoretically do that. Um, the the other thing that you would want to do as a control is also put sperm on a slide and make sure it's, you know, it's, 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 it's in solution and so on and keep it at the same temperature and see how long that takes before it it dies, you know, or store it, you know, in a, in a, in a temperature controlled area and monitor that time after time to see how long that sperm that once it's deposited how long is it before it becomes inactive? Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to become inactive in the females because, you know, there are many reptiles that can store sperm, and the way they do that is that the females 
we believe can release enzymes that somewhat coat the sperm or or, or encapsulate it and therefore keep it active. But um, you know, it would be interesting to just to see how long the sperm itself is active and indeed at what temperatures it becomes inactive. What's also interesting is that a paper just came out last week. Um, I published a paper on sperm storage in um, Himalayan mountain pit fibers, and in the same um, on the same day, that journal also published a paper on artificial insemination in snakes and 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 the how effective it was. Um, I think it's going to be interesting, given that we see these animals like these Madagascan ground boas, which are just so rare. Um, you know, is that going to be a, a method that could be used to try and um, uh, hopefully propagate these animals in time if need be? Yeah, we got to figure out something. Especially given that they produce so few babies. That's the, that's the thing that blows my mind about this year. You know, you've got an eight-foot snake, and they produce, what, like three, four babies, five babies? How is that even – yeah. how is that evolutionarily viable? How is that lineage still existing on this planet? Which that just, you know, yes, they produce big babies, but if you're only producing three or four or five animals, and they're probably only doing it every, you know, three or four or five years, how are lineages? How are how is that species staying alive and, and persistent in the populations? It just blows my mind. Yeah, I'm thinking yes, of others. Did. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of other species that do that. I guess, uh, like Solomon Island, uh, the 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 tree skinks, right? They they only have like one or two babies a year, also, right? And they produce them, and they're they're but they're really big, right? Yeah. And uh, and yeah, so maybe yeah, maybe they are able to because they camouflage so well. Very long lived. Yeah, reminds me of the Cuban boas, which are very similar. Quite large yeah. snakes with a handful of really large babies. Yeah. The same way in the wild? Yeah. I, yeah. I remember reading, you know, Cuban bows have pretty good-sized litters, but in captivity, we, we seem to get the same three or four babies. Yeah, I... Yeah, I that would you take know, us to the conversation. Yeah, you know, what you'd be looking for there is... Are they also producing a bunch of slugs? Because I could understand that, right? So if you're if you're seeing, um, you know, some of these Madagascan boas that are just slugging out, no, or only producing like one or two babies and a bunch of slugs, that suggests that there's a reproductive issue. You know, there's a timing issue. Um, if they're only producing two babies or three babies, that's something totally different. You know, why would they only be maturing two eggs or three eggs? That, that to me is the is the weird thing about it. So I have to uh, I have to look back to figure out what two supplements I ended up using. But one year, John and his wife were doing in vitro, and we started talking about you know what vitamins were they giving her and why. Mm-hmm. And fiber was you know a main thing, and there's good fiber and bad fiber for reproduction. Mm-hmm. And I chose two supplements into one female Madagascan ground boa. Luckily, she didn't produce because she dropped 14 slugs that year. Wow. So I think it probably would have killed her because she wasn't huge. But And then wow. if you look at the – they eat lemurs in the wild, and you look at the 
diet of the lemur is 51% fiber. And our rodent diets aren't hitting anywhere close to that. Nothing we feed them is anywhere close to that. And that's why I tried it. And I thought maybe with the bolans, it was something similar. Yeah, but, so I, think, I tried that also with the bolan. Did it change anything? Did they produce more follicles before before they reabsorbed them? No. <laughs> I, we, I didn't notice anything different, but I, I could have been using the wrong type of fiber, you know, for all I know. I don't know. Yeah, there is good and bad. Warren would probably know more about that. But uh, Carrie from Psychotic Exotics had a litter, two thousand mid two thousands. I think he was selling it tenly. I think he had 12, 12 babies from a ground boa. Wow! So it it is possible. We just got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it's a pity because so few people have them that you know it's just like boat breeding bowlings. You know, there's so few people actually have them and have enough animals to be able to do something with it. That uh, I just worry that, you know, we're on that knife edge of this animal disappearing from captivity. You know, if we don't start seeing babies. There's, I don't want to put their name out there because they might not want it out there. But there's definitely more people trying with adult animals. Mm-hmm. I've talked to a few that hopefully they're going to get loose this year. That would be great. Yeah, we need more. I mean, it's, it's hard to get them out there. You have three babies. John's last litter. I think three babies, all males. <laughs> you can't do a lot with that. Yeah, that's a tough one. Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a tough one. You you produce three babies and you want to hold back one point one. You know, yeah, it's not a. Yeah. That's not. It doesn't work very well. Wow. So, have you seen? Here's a here's a controversial question. <clears throat> Hybridization with doomerals. Have you seen? Um, Many hybrids. Again, I've talked to a number of people in the in the recent years that have believed they've had hybrids sold as Madagascan ground boas. Um, is that something you've seen in the past? Have you seen hybrids, or, or, or do you have concerns that some of the captive lineages that we have are actually the result of hybridization down the line? Yeah, they're definitely out there. Uh, Mike Westman, I believe, had a litter, and Ashley was on top of it. Said. Those look like hybrids. So he, he pulled a picture, I think, of the males in a tour. He's like, yeah, that's got ground bow in it. And then so he it, changes ad. So he did. He never tried to hide it. Yeah. But those are out there now. So it's kind of going to depend on what the owner does with it. So his were, his were he thought they were doomerals? Yeah, or, originally. Yeah. Right. Ashley caught it. And then he advertised them as crosses. So, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't trying to hide anything. Yeah. But now it's up to that guy that bought it. If they re or, or girl, if they resell it, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's going to breed them and sell them as doomerals. So I wonder, I wonder how much of that was deliberate, or how much of it was whenever they were brought in in the seventies and so on. You know, and they they had two animals that were somewhat similar in size—a four and a half or five foot ground boa and a four and a half or five foot female numerals and they thought they were the same thing, just variations along the color theme and the pattern? Or was it yeah. deliberate hybridization? In in Europe, it's been done deliberately, you know, because right. people have like paperwork and it states on the paperwork that they're crosses. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully they don't come here. Yeah, I suppose the, the nice thing is that in Europe, if, if, that, if, if it works the same way as the UK where they need to be microchipped, then at least there is a record of that, that 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 follows that animal 
throughout its life. And even if it breeds, the records of that animal follow its offspring. Um, yeah. I do wish we kind of, if we were going to be so strict on society's rules, we had a way to track them. We don't microchip yeah. or anything. We're not letting anything win. It's a pity because microchips are very inexpensive. You know, like it, it wouldn't be hard to set up some kind of registry if you were getting together as a group of people and wanted to register your Eastern or Western Sanzinia or your, you know, Dumerils or your Grimboas. So it wouldn't be hard to set up some kind of registry among a group of breeders to say, right, here's microchip number X, Y, whatever. And, um, and it relates to this animal and start building up lineages. Yeah. Like Andres have, we have none of their lineage mm-hmm. are awesome. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're worried about the price and 20 bucks. Right. Indeed. You know, I've got a whole bunch of, uh, microchips i'm actually going to be sending ari i've got it sitting here in a box i need to get it out to him so that he can start doing stuff with the do- or the bowlings in the wild where he can microchip them in, so he can come back and just scan them and determine if he's seen the animals before and they literally cost nothing they were so inexpensive that's very cool all right uh, paul you have any other like little quirky things with the ground boas that you notice uh, as far as captives or anything that kind of stands out from the doom rule um, like one year I had the same baby rack and one degree temperature off and the ground bows will stop feeding entirely. So I, I don't, I can't keep them together in the same rack. It's literally, I have, I have the doom rolls rack set at 86 ground bows wouldn't feed. I moved them to their separate rack, dropped the temperature and they fed. Oh, uh, like a cooler. I, I never have shed issues with the doom rolls with the ground boas. If my humidity's a little low, I will. And they also, like I said, they don't take the handling as well. They're real squirmy, always on the move. So <laughs> you see, you see people's pictures and they're in the trees and the Sanzinia are on the ground. Yeah. So do there, um, in Madagascar, do you know if their ranges overlap? I think there's a slight overlap on the southern end of the ground boas range. Okay. Oh, I noticed the pair that I had gotten from you really appreciated a nice tight uh, hide compared to like the doom rolls. And I, and I guess that's from what you're saying. I didn't have them long enough to really pick up on that more nervous nature um, because I tend to keep them on, um, a substrate that they can bury into. And also both the doomerals and the ground bows kind of did that naturally. So I didn't really pick up on what you're saying, but I did notice that they definitely preferred a nice tight hide uh, where the doomerals didn't seem to really care. Yeah. That, that male you get at Laura at Tinley, a little flighty. Yeah. It's hard to get a doomerals to bite you, but that guy was a little on edge. Yeah. Did he ever bite you? No, but I could see where he would like to make a grab at me from time to time, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not real high. They're not like a tree boa, an Amazon tree boa or anything, but they're a little more flighty. I've noticed if I take them outside and put my cell phone up to them, the ground boas get defensive really quick. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, you know, what they see in the camera, but they don't like it. The doom rolls don't care. Right. I think he told me that, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I've had a few of them come after me. <laughs> I pulled the phone up and everything changes. 
<laughs> I, I, I see with those too, they, they, they'll tend to be kind of by human habitation in the wild too, the ground bows, correct? Mm-hmm. You yeah, think they're predating up. on uh, domestic animals? You think is that is that why they're there, or do they like the the rubble created by humans? It, I mean, it might almost just be a forced issue with how much they've cleared up and destroyed everything over there. That's true. But Ed, I mean, there's the story of Big George. Everybody can Google. It's the largest ground boa on the island. It lived at a resort. It it ate the the lemurs. And then the lemurs attacked it and killed it. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> you wouldn't think lemurs could kill a ground boa, but. Right. Yeah, I think if there's, if there's enough of them. Yeah. You know. I was trying to feed on one, you know, it's attacked it. But all of that's on Google. You can find the story about it. Yeah, there's actually a, there's a paper about it in Herpetological Notes from 2013. Yeah, heaviest recorded specimen of Madagascan ground boa. Big George. Not huge. Did say how big he was? No. The, the paper is behind a paywall. I'll have to see if I can find it. I'll see what oh. I can do. And if I get it, I'll send it to you. Very cool. Hey, Paul, are you tr- are you trying to uh, pair up any animals this year on the uh, ground bows? Uh, just you. Just a couple. Yeah. Probably well. I'll knock on wood. For like, well, the one LBR ovulation, John Barry produced thing you possibly could from from pink stillborns. I don't know what's going on. Slugs. One year he sent me a picture, and I don't know what caught my eye in the picture, and I said, Ooh. three days later he got, I mean, he had a litter of females. But Timing has to be just dead all from the very long. Is Warren set up? Uh, do you remember the right? Big George no. uh, at a lodge since 2004 is the heaviest snake recorded in the entire history of Madagascar. 8.2 kilograms, 270 centimeters in length. Lost due to Safaka lemurs. Um, but recently, Another sets a new record with the discovery of another specimen weighing 11.75 kilograms and measuring 263 centimeters, much heavier than Big George, and that was in 2021. So there is now another giant. So if you, yeah, it's a big animal. Holy crap. Yeah, that's a, that's a big animal. <laughs> Yeah, so almost 20, nine feet. Yeah, 26, 26 pounds in weight. Wow. <laughs> That's a beast. Yeah, for sure. If the people well, really want to like, kind of follow the wild, like, I, I go Instagram, I don't really use. I have pictures on there from years ago, but I follow Hat because it seems like people in France go to Madagascar on vacation a lot. They'll post pictures. Sometimes you can the locality, so that's that's all I watch for. And then that's where I think Sanzinia, there's a lot of variation in location. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like the highlands, the highlands we have none of those in captivity. And I, uh, what 
glaw after glaw, they emailed him and asked if they had ever stayed with Tanzania in the Highlands. He said they had looked there and never found any. But they are there. It's real rocky, very cold, and they're awesome. And I wish we had them. Yeah. Yeah. If you look on iNaturalist, um, currently, if you just type in Tanzania, there's 377 observations. Um, from 229 different observers, and the range in color and pattern is remarkable. Um, let's see. Uh, if you look at Nizi Kumba, they look totally different. Yeah, yeah, they. Um, they you know that people don't seem to utilize iNaturalist as much as they should. Um, it can really show a lot of really cool pictures of animals in the wild. And just typing in um, Ancantophis madagascariensis, there are 104 observations from 76 different people. And even there, the color variation is just incredible. There's animals that are high orange and pink through the ones that are just really dark and muddy looking. Um, yeah, if you want to be able to um, lose yourself in a computer for uh, many hours, go to iNaturalist and type in every species you can think of that you want to see in the wild. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, that's that's epic. I'm trying to find a hot example. Yeah, what what, it, what stands out to you on those? On For the me? islands? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Warren. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Uh, the highlands are just a dark animal. Gray, brown, and black. Just more in my wheelhouse. I can send you guys some pictures of them if you'd want. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, our friend uh, Zach was just over there on a little herping uh, expedition, and uh, he posted some pictures of uh, Sanzina that he found that that were pretty cool looking. Are those ones that look gravid? Yeah. My goodness, yeah, you sent me that picture. That is, that's an animal that is just... Wow, that's crazy. Good size, too. That's huge. So let's talk about Tanzania, then. Okay. So you, you keep both Easterns and Westerns? Yeah. And I have some Easterns that are dark, and nobody would want them. <laughs> so he has some row fields, which are unbelievably beautiful animals. And I think, you know, people see that and that's what they want. And so I think a lot of people in time pick up baby Eastern Tanzanias and be disappointed. Because if, if they're after that top shelf specimen like Keith has, they're probably not going to get that. The Westerns yeah. overall, seem, to me, seem like overall to be a pretty animal. You kind of know what you're going to get. Hmm. They do really well with line breeding. Easterns are kind of all over the place. I think we have a ton to learn. Like Keith posted that baby. and People are wanting to know if it's a hypo or a T-positive albino. For all we know, it's going to look like every other Eastern in five years from now. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, so just, just, for, just for the listeners, the, uh, when we talk about Easterns and Westerns, you might also hear about people uh, referring to them as Green Sanzinia for the Easterns and um, the Mandarin Sanzinia for the, for the Westerns or um, Sanzinia voluntani for the Westerns and Sanzinia madagascariensis, madagascariensis for the, 
for the eastern so they're they're genetically distinct at least at the extents of their of the range and as as Paul is saying the color variation in the green sanzinia really is is really quite striking one thing that i find really interesting about them is the fact that they're born um you know i've got one that was bright red um and you know it was it was as bright red as any um, baby emerald trebo i've produced and it went through that ontogenic color change, took a little bit longer than an emerald tree boa. Um, whereas the Westerns that I've seen, I don't keep any Westerns. They seem to be a lot more standard in terms of what you see is what you get. Um, but I, I think we've mentioned before on the show, there was one, and you, you might know this, um, Paul, a number of years ago, maybe 20 years ago, um, a guy called Rene Voss in Europe produced one that looked almost yellow, almost yeah. patternless yellow did you know anything about that lineage and you know what happened to it because he he then seemed to disappear i don't know where he went because i never saw posts from him again or or anything about that lineage afterwards yeah all i know about that is what you and heather have posted right mccallum mm-hmm. so i don't know a lot about it because um, she's she's only- produced she's produced one or two that have been pretty yellow yeah. right but but not not to the extent of that that original animal that i remember yeah. That's insane, that high yellow. Um, the only thing I've seen was David Muth and Ron Smith produced the Eastern, just like that. But really? it, yeah. it didn't last very long. Oh, I remember that one. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. What did Ron name it? Sweet Revenge or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they had picked out the animals and Ron got his later. Like, well, you can have mm-hmm. a spare. They, mm-hmm. they picked the best ones, and then it's pretty sad, baby. So yeah. I think that's why he was sweet binge. Yeah, but he, he never produced again anything like it, right? I'm aware of Yeah. I think he's, in your last Madagascar episode, talked about his doom rolls had produced normals and then through the hypo-looking animals one season, but never again. Is that right, Keith? Yeah, that's, that's how it went. Yep, exactly. And they were real reliable beat breeders. I got, I don't know, maybe over the course of their life, I've probably got at least eight or ten litters out of them. And yeah, it was just that one litter that was like that. It was very odd. Was the entire litter like that? Yeah, it was a small litter. It was only five animals, but they all they all looked like that. So I wonder, I wonder were they um, were they born slightly prematurely? You, know, you sometimes see that color variation on these. No, no. Hmm. More yours? No. That I—they always seem to be full term. Yeah. Um, you produced that really nice western, uh, what a year or two ago. That one that had so much white on it. It, it was really beautiful animal. Yeah, she's doing well. Um, she's slightly different. Me and John talked about in Daytona that you know she, she's not so different, but she's going to have issues. But I think she kind of does. I have to watch her humidity really well in the shed, or she won't shed out completely, where any other Western would. So she may have something just slightly off. And my concern is, will she ever even breed? Because those animals never seem to have bred. Uh, Glenn Brooks has a pretty high yellow female. So I'm kind of, he's years ahead of me on her, so I'm hoping his breeds, that'll give me a little bit of, a little bit of something to, you know, go on. Right. His is, I don't know if you've seen that animal, but she's gorgeous. And that oh, was out of, 
Bill Hughes line. Oh, I have seen that there. Yeah, I, I, I recall that one there. Yeah. Yeah, he's very nice. I think he's trying to breed her this season for the first time. Did you get to talk to Glenn in uh, Daytona, Bill? Uh, Paul? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, and that's how I found out he was. I think that he was going to try to breed her. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with the Sanzinia, Paul, how, how do you generally setting your animals up, and you know your general husbandry on those? Um, again, pretty basic. I always put mulch in, and then I hate it, <laughs> and I go back to paper and keep them basic. It's easy to clean. It's quick. Cycling wise, I just I'm in the wet. So come October, my windows go open. I let it drop down. It'll, it's usually degrees more in my room than outside. So as long as it's 40 degrees outside, I just keep the windows open. In the morning for work, I shut the windows. The room will come back up naturally, maybe to 68. Every night, bring them back open and just start pairing them up. The Western, to me, seem very simple breed. Yeah. Never had a problem. Yeah. You know, if Wait. it gets a little too warm. So you're dropping the them down to 40, you're dropping them down to, or you're allowing them to get as cold as 40 at night. Is that what you said? No, if it, if it's 40 outside, my room will go to 50. Okay. 50. Right. Well, that's still, Overnight. that's still remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I've, so it was, uh, Arslan Valiv, I believe the Russian mm-hmm. guy that killed himself with the black mamba. He put yeah. out a couple of papers and okay. so did Adam Radonovich, I think is the name. He's a zookeeper in England. Mm-hmm. Their papers were pretty similar, and I believe as Arslan said, he was taking his Easterns into the 40s. I don't think it's necessary. It's proof it's not necessary. But mm-hmm. the Easterns, I got them probably to 50. And I had Easterns eating, temp done them at 55 degrees, still feeding. <laughs> amazing. That's just amazing. Yeah, but that was one of the things I noticed when I first started keeping Sanzania. I'd feed them, and they'd go to the coolest end of the cage. Yeah. Well, that's different. No. Yeah. I noticed that also, Paul, though the Westerns were always a lot easier to breed for me than the Easterns, for sure. Yeah, the, the, I don't know why, if their sperm's more volatile. You wouldn't think so. They're so similar to each other. Yeah. It's probably a temperature range across the island, you know, because the Easterns occur in a relatively small area, right? The Westerns are, have got a much larger range across the island. And they're also in a really, it's quite a different habitat, right? The Northeastern part of the island is quite different than the, than the rest of the island. Yeah. So you're probably seeing, you know, quite a significant, um, environmental change that, 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 that that they've evolved within and, and required to be triggered. And I talked to Bill Love one year intently because he's been a Madagascar, I think, more than anybody. And he said in the east, you can find frost on the ground in the mornings. So it's really cool there. But like, it's proven you don't have to take them into the breeze to be successful with them. Yeah. The first time I bred them, I wanted to go hard and have success. So but pretty cool. I never got a rest for out of anybody. I think that's a fear, right? Whenever you're whenever you're allowing a boa to go down into the fifties or even lower, that's your biggest fear, you know, them them popping out with a respiratory infection. And I suppose as long as you've got a sufficient hot spot during the day at some point for them to raise their body temperature, then and, and assuming you're 
enclosures are nice and clean, um, then you'd hope that they wouldn't pick up a respiratory infection. It's just a fear of doing that. But you know what? Given the value of Eastern Sanzinia, it scares the life out of me thinking about in a couple of years' time whenever I'm going to try and pair mine together. Uh, just trying to get them cold enough. Right now, my snake room sits at about 70 at night. And the Easterns are so active at that temperature. It, it, yeah. And, and mine, just stay, mine just stay in the trees, which is something I'd never seen before. But they um, they are so active at 70 degrees, it's unreal. And Keith, you might go, what, 65? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, though, because the bull and I, I've brought them to 46 uh, wow. degrees. And, and they can definitely, they can take nights in the 40s, but not consistently. Like if you, if you, most of your nights are, let's say, low 60s, high 50s, and then you hit them maybe, you know, once every two weeks with a 40 degree night, it doesn't even phase them. But if you sustain that temperature, uh, even giving them whatever warmth during the day, but if you sustain that temperature for, you know, four or five days, then you start seeing issues with the animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but the Sanzinia, you, you know, you know, I've been having a, a few, I had that one litter and then the last couple litters have had, you know, low fertility and all that kind of stuff. So maybe I, I do need to go a little bit more with the first litter. Though it was the same temps. I didn't, I don't really go below 65. And then I was like, I kind of think about leading up to this, like mature animals, they're 10 years old before you breed them, I think are going to be a little easier than if you're breeding a four-year-old female. That's yeah. And that's exactly season. what, that's what ha- we had in that group. I mean, all the animals here are actually Matt Minotola's, Elijah and uh, Paul's animals, you know, and we kind of put this little group together and Elijah's animal is definitely an older uh, female, she's definitely probably well over 10 years. I'm going to say she's probably in the 12 year range. Uh, where Matt's females that are here are in the five year range, I think, right now. So, yeah, she's the one that popped out the best litter so far. And how many was that, Keith? Um, I, well, what was, I, I don't even remember how many viable babies there were. Was it six? Seven? Seven, Seven yeah. I think. Seven and, and there was uh, f- like four or five slugs or not slugs. I'm sorry, stillborns with her. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I wonder. Back... Sorry, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Uh, when I drop the temperatures that hard on my Sanzini, I do keep a hot spot available. They just avoid it, but yeah. it, it's there. You know, if I have I, I'm going too hard at 50 and they need heat, the other end of the cage has it, but they avoid it. So how long? As far away. How long do you maintain that for? How long is, how, how long are they getting access to temperatures in the 50s? Through the end of February. I, sh- I shoot for my ovulations in March. I'm hoping by mid-March I have an ovulation. And then, but but you've co- you've started cooling them down in November? October, November? October, naturally. October, because mm-hmm. it varies a lot. One night it'll be 40, the next night it's 70. Then it's right. 50. And, and then when, when are you pairing the animals together? Originally, I'd start pairing in October, and like I said, with the westerns, I didn't have a problem with it. With the easterns, my males would be burned out. Mm-hmm. They hit out, hit ovulation and slugs. Yeah, or some some viable babies and some slugs. So now I'm thinking I'm waiting January to pair them up. Yeah, it would be the other thing that would be kind of cool to do in those lines 
if there were sufficient numbers of animals to do this with, would be to collect sperm in the October-November time whenever you're pairing animals together to check for viability. And then again, to check sperm in January and then in February, March kind of thing. You know, check it monthly to look for viability once the animals are paired up so you know that they're they are breeding so are you losing you know you're going to see a drop in, in sperm count but are you seeing a change in in mobility and and and, and therefore functionality of the sperm and, and and i think you know as we went as we mentioned earlier on it, it's probably just the males are just burnt out they've used it up the sperm's not stored and and uh, you therefore see um reproductive issues down the line you know slug outs or you know infertile ova sorry or of um, um non-viable offspring you know whether they're still born or deformed yeah yeah i think we go we're too excited and a lot of people would say you know oh they'll breed any time of year mm-hmm. i noticed that when i in the basement my animals would breed year-round nothing would happen but mm-hmm. if you put them together they'd lock up yeah and i kind of think that's when you're keeping them kind of on that cusp of not warm enough, not cool enough. They don't really know what season they're in. Oh, so in that case, what what, what do you what temperature do you keep your animals at then in the uh, in the in the summer in the in the non breeding season? So now, like I'm not in the basement with them anymore. They're on the main floor, so they're more you know house temperature. So the room is going to be 78, 80 in the ambient from all the heat from the cages. And if I put them together, I don't want to have nothing to do with each other. But back when I was in the basement, if I put them together, they'd breed. So I, I, I think the animals are kind of confused. Yeah. We're keeping them too long year round. Yeah. Madagascar is tough because if you look at the natural temperatures, it's going to be 88 during the day, but then it drops to 60 every night. Mm-hmm. It's a really strange area for both. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive swing, which is interesting in that if that happens normally, you know, and we're we're not offering that to our animals in the uh, in the non breeding season. You know, we're not allowing them to go from eighty eight during the day, even dropping down ten degrees at night. Most of us are offering a four five degree temperature drop. Maybe we're not offering enough um, to result in viable sperm production. You know, whenever whenever it's leading up to um, kind of spermatogenesis, maybe we need to rethink how we're keeping these things. Yeah, it's a constant up and down and. That's why, you know, people are like, what temperature do you keep them at? I don't pay that much attention most of the year because it varies so much in the wild. I don't think I have to be, oh, it's 88, 78 every day. I just kind of let the room fluctuate naturally. So you keep yours, uh, your your um, Easterns and Westerns, do you keep them in arboreal setups or what way do you uh, maintain them? Uh, my typical cage is an AP. I think it's a T15 foot long, 15 inches high. 24 inches deep. Mm-hmm. But yes, it depends on if you consider arboreals long or tall. Because I know that that's the whole thing. The taller you get, it doesn't matter. They're always going to go to the top. You give them length and give them the yeah. gradient. Yeah, I, I do that with my, even with my, my uh, Corrales, four foot by two foot by two foot is the biggest. And, uh, and they go back and forward across that there. But if I offered a four foot tall by two foot by two foot, They'll go and sit at one point, and that's it. They're they're not going to be active. Um, yeah, I so yeah, I yeah. prefer the length for the gradient. Yeah, I, I think talking to Tracy Barker a number of years ago, Tracy mentioned that she keeps hers in. I think she said she keeps hers in racks, and uh, and she breeds them uh, 
successfully every year, I think she said. And that was for Westerns because at the Arlington show, she had a bag of them. This is maybe yeah. f- five years ago. Because I, I, you know, I would chat to Tracy a lot and then she was busy on opening up a bag and there was just a bunch of Western Sanzinia. I nearly, it was just incredible. And she said, oh yeah, just keep them in racks and maintain them and they just do their thing. It's like, all right, Tracy, that's great. So some more information would be wonderful. <laughs> well, the, my, my first year breeding sends in the Eastern, I put them in a habitat systems rack and I moved them into a, a separate bedroom because it was freezing. You know, I'd, my wife would get mad. You know, the rooms are cold. But, so I put them in the habitat systems rack and let them cool because they're getting cooled. They don't need, they're not going to be moving. They don't need for foot and it worked. So yeah, racks are possible. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's preferable, but and and they're not necessarily big snakes, right? The easterns are a lot smaller. Uh, or they yeah, tend to be, yeah, what four feet kind of thing. Yeah, four and a half. Yeah, not huge racquetball size girth. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it was maybe. Let's see. I went right to North Carolina, so that was like twelve, maybe eleven, twelve years ago. I was on Fauna Classifieds one night, as you would have done at the time, and somebody posted a litter of green Sanzinia. And it showed, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a picture of, it looked like a, you know, one of the Exoterras that's like 24 inches high by 18 wide by 18 deep. And it had a female Sanzinia in it and maybe seven or eight babies. And they were selling them all for like 350 a piece. Is that where Matt got his? Yeah, those are my animals. <laughs> are they? Well, they're Matt's animals, but at my house, yeah. Man, I saw yeah. that advert. I could not email fast enough. Yeah, Matt, Matt got on it, it right away. It appeared and it disappeared. I was like, yeah. I was ready to get in the car and drive from Raleigh to Atlanta or whatever it was. Yeah. And I was going to go. I was, I was, that's what I would have done. And the person just emailed and said, you're literally like two minutes too late. Somebody just bought the, the entire litter. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Gary has some of those, and Keith, Matt, yeah. and another unknown person. Has that's, that's funny. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing the things that stick in my mind because it was so out of place in terms of the price, but also you thought it was looking scam, at how it was right? kept. Yeah, looking at how it was being kept. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, it's a twenty-four by eighteen by eighteen exoterra. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's turtle guy. Yeah, I find bread. He ended up losing that female because I remember yeah. the male. He was, yeah, but he priced the male accordingly. He wanted thirty five hundred for the male. Right, he kind of screwed himself on the babes. God, yeah, he really did. They they were they were literally going for nothing. You know, I was ready to clean up my bank account and drive to Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. my wife wouldn't have been happy, but yeah. they're some of the best ones in the country now. Those are what three? <laughs> They're some of the best ones oh, in the country. God, yeah, they I'm were sure. worth $350. Yeah, that's unreal. <laughs> Very Keith, good. Keith broke them out. Clearly, I tried everything I could. Like, I'll trade you this and some <laughs> money for a female. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. But it, 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 I will say the other thing that's weird about Sanzinia for people that don't own Eastern Sanzinia. I don't know about you guys, but mine almost act like ball pythons. When I take them out, they, they curl up into a ball. Yeah, hide so the head. Hide the head right into it, and they just curl up right into a ball. I've taken them outside to, to, to photograph them. You know, and I'm sitting there, I'm having to prod them and wait for 10 minutes for them to finally start moving. And then once they do, the head comes out, they need to disappear, and they're off. I can never get a good picture 
of any of my Eastern Tanzania. They're a little tough. I have, I think you guys touched on locality and variations. I have some Easterns that are very arboreal. I can't palpate them. They're too tense all the time. Mm-hmm. And I have others that are like a ground boa. Yeah, that's across. Yeah, I, yeah, I mentioned before about mine um, because I've kept them in different ways. When they were young, you know, I kept them in, in like Rubbermaid shoe boxes and then stepped them up accordingly. And they weren't very arboreal at all. So then when I moved to, was it, I'm trying to think, was it maybe still when I was in Oklahoma, I just put them into a, into a Freedom Breeder rack, CB70, and those things did great. They fed it because they, they were – they were pain in the ass. One of one of them, the male, was a pain in the ass to get or to to feed continually. I would have to leave the food there and walk away, and it would come back and it would be gone. Like it would never take a meal from me. Um, and I put it into a rack, and that changed entirely. It, it fed perfectly every ten days or two weeks. It would eat, and it would eat rats instead. Cause before it only eat mice and stuff. It changed its behavior entirely. Then, whenever I moved up here to Blacksburg, um, I put together two two foot cube. Um, uh, PVC cages side by side, and I and I put the pair into them with lots of branches. I've never seen them on the ground, and they both feed every night. I can go in, and they're sitting with that classic kind of green tree python, emerald tree boa pose, about five to six inches off the ground, um, waiting for something to go past, and they will nail everything that goes near them. They've just turned into incredible, just incredible feeders in that just different environment and um and their behavior has just changed entirely it's amazing because before i was like yeah tree bow is my ass you know these things are sitting in the ground and they're they're not being arboreal at all much um based on what i was seeing but now that's my my opinion's totally changed and, and that's basically how i keep everything just off what the snake tells me yeah, like on breeding things, what's the snake showing me? Does it want to be colder? Does it want to be warmer? Mm-hmm. And just going off that. So, yeah, if if the snake's going to stay on the ground all the time, it should be seventy. Why not? Yeah, you're just wasting eighteen inches of four foot cage. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I was pleased to see to see them become so arboreal, um, and I've got a larger cage for the female once she's mature. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll kit it out the same way. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if she then uses that four foot by four foot enclosure in the same way that she's using a two foot by two foot. Do you guys ever see them do anything during the day? Uh, no, mine just sit in the branches and sleep or look inactive. I don't see anything till like after eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, that's it. I go down to my room at like eleven uh, to turn off lights, and they're sitting both in the exact same pose, um, just in different cages, waiting for food. And they could have been fed the night before, and they're right back again waiting to uh, – looking for food. And Keith, you, you mentioned that you had males get that were tough to get back on food. What what ended up working? Uh, time, basically. Time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they definitely, during the breeding season, for me anyway here, they – they don't want anything to do with food whatsoever. The males, the females will eat, you know, no matter what I've tried feeding them, um, unless they were gravid. Um, but the males, yeah, once breeding season started, that seems to me all they had on their mind. And I would offer food and they wouldn't eat. 
and it was man, they probably didn't start eating again because I think I even messaged you that I was starting to get worried. Like, it was a long time. I think it wasn't like till June or July, and they started feeding again last year. It was a while. Yes. Anytime my mails had went off, if I offered them a mouse, they would take it. But I yeah, never I had tried that because you had mentioned that. Yeah, they both went off feed for, you know, and it was both of them. So I wasn't so worried. I knew it was just kind of a condition thing going on because if it was one male, you know, I'd be like, what's going on? But it just seemed like both males were in this zone, you know, and the females were yeah. eating and doing fine and everybody's kept the same. So I just played it out and let it ride out. And then they started feeding when it say did, I, you know, got the weight back on them and uh, no problems. This year, they don't seem to be doing it as much. Uh, I, I just actually uh, tried feeding the males uh, Sunday, and they both ate. So that was the first Good meal deal. I have given them for since probably mid-November. Um, I was keeping them hungry wolves make the best hunters, is what uh, <laughs> uh, Frederick always says with the bull and I. So, yeah, I, I was keeping them all food and just letting them, you know, they lean but and work. active. Yeah, exactly. So when these people post the pictures in Madagascar, they're gravid, obviously. And I think one of them said they were darkening up for the sun. Yeah. Has yeah. anyone ever, have you ever seen any of your Sanzania change color day to night? I, I haven't. No, me neither. No, I, I haven't. Yeah. Definitely the hormonal yeah, think, thing when the females are gravid with the, with the Easterns, for yeah. sure. They get very dark. Yeah. I think it's funny. Everybody's finding these gravid females out and about. So are they, are they cruising for food? Are they going from one basking spot to another? I still haven't figured out what they're doing, that they're so readily right there. Everybody's finding them. So yeah. um, talking to, to my friend that goes to, the, to Madagascar quite a bit, he says they, they, they find them a lot. Not not necessarily gravid females, but they find Sanzinia a lot. Um. They're, yeah, they seem like the garter snake over there. Yeah. So it's, but, um, you know, it's possible that it's just a case of density whenever you've got a, a ton of animals, you know, and um, that uh, you're going to increase your likelihood of seeing gravid, gravid females. They seem to stumble upon them a lot, which yeah. would be a hard vacation coming home. Yeah, you just look at, look at an iNaturalist and you see a bunch of these animals are definitely female and definitely gravid sitting what appears to be right out in the open. Yeah. At mine, I still feed them when they're gravid, really small meals, like the size of their head. It's never aggressive. I'll set the rat in there, walk away. I come back and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's worthwhile so, Too much, You know, a lot of people will, will stop feeding their, their boas or pythons in general when they're gravid thinking that, that it's going to damage eggs and offspring. I, uh, my feeling is that if they, you know, are sitting basking in the wild and they're gravid and a food item comes in, into, into view, they're going to go for it, um, big or small. I don't think, you know, evolution has not created an animal, has not resulted in an animal that, that can't cope with eating. You know, it's not putting massive pressure on the babies. They can, re, they can be reorganized within the, the, the female's cavities, you know. I don't think you should do it all the time, but I think you should definitely offer food to, to gravid females. I do it with all of mine. Yeah, I stepped on the food size a bit, but I, I feed, um, and, and I just see a, a, a much healthier animal at the end. You know, the ones yeah, that don't feed just come out like skin and bones, you know, because they use so much um, 
going through that process. Yeah, I did that with blood pythons when I was breeding a lot of blood pythons. And I even had a female that ate the day she deposited her eggs. Nice. Yeah, I, I had that um, this year with the, the couple of boas that I had that were gravid. But I just didn't know how far into it there were gravid poles. I don't know if you knew, Paul, I was traveling a lot in the spring between Oklahoma and, and Virginia. And, and my animals were at a friend's place in Knoxville. Um, and some animals being paired accidentally here and there. So whenever I got them all in July, there were three females that were gravid. These were these were um, boa sigma and boa imperator, but I just didn't know when they were due to give birth. And one of them, so I just thought, well, I'm going to offer them food and see you know see how they do because they've been fed so sparingly in the spring. And one of them I fed the night before, and she dropped you know a healthy litter the next day. So nice. you know it's uh, it doesn't seem to have uh, too much of an effect. For timing, the first time I bred leopard bows, my male wouldn't breed, would not breed. Follicles were getting huge. So I moved them out into the, the unheated part of the basement, got down to 50 one night, put them back with the female. They locked up one time, de-ovulated yeah. within 12 hours. I've always, yeah, I've always said that to people that ask me, because I, I breed a lot of, of leopard boas and boa sigma. Um, and people have asked me how, how, they, how I can breed them so routinely. And I said, I let my animals get cold. I let them get into the 60s. And and I still offer a hot spot. Um, but the animals move right to the coldest point. And I'm sure they'd go colder if they could. Um, they move right to the coldest spot. Um, if I don't offer that, then the, then I don't seem to get much breeding activity. So it's, um, yeah, the animals know best. Yeah, I think that was the first time I ever just went nuts in the cold. I'm like, I'm going to freeze them out, see what happens. And yeah. We're perfect. Like, say, one lock. Yeah. Done. You know what's also cool? Looking at iNaturalist while we're chatting here um, on the Sanzinia section, scrolling through it, they're finding babies as well. How cool yeah, is the- that? Can, and it's, it's not just one or two. There's, there's a bunch of them that are babies. Yeah, I think like around February they're finding them. Ken Foose yeah. found one. You know, uh-huh. piece, but yeah. The baby he found was amazing. It looked like it was a Highlands type. I don't know really for sure where he was, but that was in February. And it, it all goes with the timeline. And that's why I try to feed is taking a year of their life to produce a litter. Six months worth of follicles developing, six months worth of gestation. I don't I don't want my animals to go eat six months straight without food no so have you you have you observed ovulation in your females yeah yeah i almost uh, always catch it and from that point um you, is it six months or thereabouts or five months or it's, it's nearly six months for the sins any and the ground boas girls are five that's incredible you got such a long gestation for these animals I think it's amazing. 168 days. That's amazing. And is that what you've observed as well, Keith? Yeah. Um, I haven't bred the ground boas, so those I don't know about. But, yeah, with the Dumerals and the Sanzinia. Yeah. Same thing. Keith, were you the first to breed both the Sanzinia? And I mean, according to Tracy and, and Eugene Bissett, yeah, I was the first private person to breed those in captivity, but... Pretty awesome. Yeah. And what were your litter sizes for each of those? Do you remember, 
Okay. I don't. I just have pictures of me holding handful of babies <laughs> with a shit-eating grin from year to year. Cause... Yeah, because I think I remember seeing that picture, and I was like, holy shit, not only did he produce both of them, but he produced a buttload of them as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was yeah. great. That was uh, definitely one of my highlights of keeping animals in captivity, that's for sure. I, um, Keith, wasn't it... Uh... Sorry about that. Keith, wasn't it your story, uh, going back to Daytona years back, that when you had first produced Tanzania, that Philippe de Vaugely had come to your table and said, oh, what did you do, do to breed him? And you said, oh, I got him cold. And he said, I knew it because of the frost, you know, in Madagascar. Yeah. He was traveling with so much there. He said that he actually that? had turned... Yeah, he said he actually turned a log over and found a Sanzinia, and the ground actually had frost around that log that the Sanzinia was under. Um, yeah, so he, he was like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew that was what, what the key was, why nobody was breeding them. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, whatever you did, keep doing it. Brian. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you, you know, sit. I think we're oh, getting close. Go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. Oh, sorry about that. Tough with four. Um, when you were mentioning five yeah. to six months, is that from the ovulation date or is that from the date of the shed? So you said Ob 168 ovulation. Yeah. So what does that look like Ob from the shed? Like minus 20 days, something like that? Yeah, see, I and everybody asks that because it's so common and common is I've never really paid attention to the post-ovulation shed. Cause I see ovulation and I, but I just it'd be real consistent. The only shed I, I kind of bank on is the rebirth shed and they all seem to shed in relation to when they're going to drop babies. Your moles will shed usually about a week to two weeks before giving birth. If you have birth for that shed, it's almost guaranteed to be bad. That's super and interesting. Me. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the stuff that I have, uh, the Candelia and the Calabathrus stuff, um, yeah, the shed is well after birth. So that's super interesting. Can you, yeah, dive into that, I guess, is what I would say. Uh, let's see. Early 2000, I think Bill Love made a, had written an article in Reptiles and said he found three gravid Madagascan Grombos all under the same board or whatever. Like, well, if, if they're breeding in groups or staying together in groups when they're rabbit, I'll, I'll pair up 1.3 Doomerals. And I gave that a shot. And all of them ovulated within a day of each other. And then everybody did the same thing. Shed, seven to eight days later, had the... And I don't group breed them anymore, but, I mean, it just showed everything. Everybody was on the same schedule. And I think Tim Fraser back then that started, like, well, I'm going to attention to that and he did the same thing i don't think tim breed them anymore but he used to breed some really nice tumors so i watch for ovulation it's pretty obvious it's like a common boa and then i just go five months out and like i say if you get if they drop before that shed it's almost always bad are the sanzinia shedding before they drop as well or is that after Oh, the same thing, like, I don't think I've gotten enough, but me and Keith both had females that got dark and shed out and hadn't dropped yet. I don't think Keith ever got anything from that female. No, she never did anything. Yeah, so uh, did she reabsorb? She obviously 
was gravid at some point. Something happened for to get that hormonal dark. My Western, I think it was two weeks later, dropped five or six newborns and one live baby. But they usually, for uh, what Keith experienced, but like right around their shed is usually when they're dropping. Yeah, that uh, female from Elijah, when her eyes get cloudy, I know the babies are on the way and I start watching for it. She usually drops them and then uh, and then um, sheds after the babies are dropped. Like just a few days, though. It's not like a long time. Yeah, it's real quick. So after mine shed out, I heard she wasn't going to do anything also. But I think, like I said, it was like two weeks later. She dropped those stillborns. Yeah. So then, now I got to go back and figure out what I did wrong. <coughs> huh. That's super interesting. And Warren, in terms of like common boas and stuff, those are shedding after birth, right? Not. Um, yeah. So, kind of yes. Thing? So I, for the boa sigma and the boa imperator that I produce every year, um, I. 99.9% of the time I get a post ovulation shed about 20 days after the ovulation. Um, they may shed mid gestation, but I then get litters, um, between 90 days and a hundred and normally 90 days and 101, 102 is when I see my, my litters of Sigma or Boa Imperator from the Costa Rican, Nicaraguan and the Sonoran kind of line Boas. Um, and there's no shed before they give birth. And I'm trying to think, did the, uh, you know, in all the times that I've bred Corrales from Schumberger, I have, I seen, I don't, I haven't seen a shed prior to birth either. It's always been afterwards. But as I say, you know, the, the Madagascan stuff is just so evolutionarily distinct, and different that it, it doesn't surprise me that they do different things. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when it, uh, Paul had mentioned it here. It's just like, wow, that's to me, that's, um, speaks to how distinct those animals that pop, you know, that, that, uh, ecology is right. That evolutionary history that, because I'm not familiar with that in any other boa that sort of, I have any exposure to. So that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I think the Madagascan stuff in general for gestation through to birth, you know, the fact that the babies are born, you know, all of them are born big, whether it's Sanzinia or, or Ankantophis, the babies are all large, and they shed. They're all shedding essentially instantaneously, right from birth. Um, you know, it's just an interesting lineage um, in general. Yeah, all mine shed right the board. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like a, it's such a cool trait. It's a very cool thing. You know, I'd, I'd um, obviously I haven't bred Sanzinia, but um, seeing. Uh, I've bred Corrales Ruschenbergeri a bunch of times, but seeing the Trinidad locality Ruschenbergeri, which are a separate evolutionary lineage from the from the Costa Rican, uh, quite distinct. Seeing those um, be born this past year and shed immediately, I thought was really really something I'd never seen before. Whereas the Costa my Costa Rican lineages never do that. So again, you know, it shows you how these distinct lineages can do really unusual things um, when it comes to reproduction. I'm going to trigger some people. When I bred black blood pythons, <laughs> then they, they didn't shed for, for months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they didn't. They didn't shed for months. I was like, "What? What's going on?" When? What's, yeah, it was kind of weird. Yeah. How long does it take? 
Keith, you bred nut bloods. How long does it take for that first shed? Oh, it can take six to eight months sometimes. That's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah I am. Um, wow. The monster's probably- short. Yeah, you guys probably know him. I, I um, uh, Michael Ogle's a friend of mine, and he I, I picked up a Sumatran, a T positive Sumatran short tail, um, maybe a month ago from him, and uh, I saw them some of those babies at Tinley, uh, and they were born. They'd hatched before that, and literally the night that I got it from him, how many months later after after it hatched, um, it shed that night, the night that I got it. Um, so it's, uh, uh, that's another just unusual, uh, lineage, you know, where you see this, this really prolonged event before they shed. I don't know what the evolutionary advantage of that is, but maybe whenever they're living in a really damp, uh, condition, I don't know. Very unusual. Well, it is, it is something to do with that Warren. I think because up until that first shed, I would keep my babies literally on a film of water in a shoebox. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that shed, then I could move them um, onto a more typical setup of paper or if you want to keep them on a substrate. But up until that first shed, I found the babies always did better for me in my conditions with just this film of water on the bo- bottom of the, uh, the mm-hmm. tub that they were in. Very cool. Water so, on the blood pythons. Uh, automatic asking boas, I can palpate sex with my finger, no problem. Yeah, but you got Blood magic fingers. You got magic fingers, man. I I seen you go through all my baby boas and 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 all down in Daytona, and I don't know how you I do it. I don't know how you feel. I can't sex the blood pythons to save my life. Oh no! <laughs> I watched Keith Daytona. No problem doing it. I was terrible at it. I can't pop so them. Can't pop. Yeah, so I can I can sex boas easily through palpation. I haven't tried Sanzinia. Is it the same way, Paul? Do you when you with the males? Do you feel those little kind of bumps yeah. as you move? Yeah. Bumpies, okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, real, it, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. I can do that with with regular you know Sigma and Imperator easily. Um, you know, and it's uh, I find it very straightforward. Um, and that another way to some is with spurs. Awful. Yeah. Bag, asking, but right. Rarely, I've had one female. Rolls after, and she produced, so she was definitely a female for a while. I was thinking because Ashley had posted papers on the mo having pieces. I don't know if you saw that, Warren. Um, I don't think so. I think Doom Rolls made Sanzenia. Ashley had posted papers. Of, oh, uh, straights. Yeah, I'm not sure. So I thought maybe, well, maybe I have one. It's male, female. Yeah. She eventually produced. Yeah, because I I um I got an animal from Doug Taylor a, a bunch of, a number of years ago, and he'd sent it. I think I want to say that he sent it as a female. Yeah. And then a number of years later, I looked at it and it had spurs, and I thought uh, I thought females weren't meant to have spurs, and I probed it, and it you know I think it was like seven or eight you know um, subcaudal scales deep. So I thought, yeah, I've got a female. Oh, sorry, I got a mail. Um, but yeah, because I'd heard a lot of people say that spurs are the way to go. But there's always going to be that outlier, I, I would think. So here's yeah. going to be a question, probably to close it out. We talked about hybridization between Madagascar ground bows and doomerals. I'm sure we've seen hybridization unintentionally between eastern and westerns. 
Um, and how deep that goes in the animals that are now in captivity, I don't know. But did you see the recent pictures of, I mean, it was last year, of the Sanzinia uh, Dumerils hybrid? Yeah. Beautiful animal. I'm never going to try it. I thought you said you might try it. I might. I, try it. It I might. Try it. It I might. A, a, lot, a lot of people will, will kill me for it, but I would happily keep all those babies. I thought they were stunning. Oh, I yeah. thought they were that's visually beautiful. incredible looking. And that's yeah, why I, I keep looking at Morph Market and Doomerals and just thinking, yeah. you know, if the right one pops up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at least do male, 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 to female Doomerals. Yeah. That's the way I would do it. Yeah. 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 That'll be the okay. first time. Yeah. Cause my male's my male Eastern, I'm sure he's ready to go. Um, and my female's a number of years away. So I'm like, you know, in the time in between then, if I, if the right female Doomerals popped up, so if anybody's listening and they've got a female Dumerals that they want to trade for some uh, Boa Sigma or Boa Imperator, uh, let me know. Uh, I would definitely be interested. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be like that Boa where nobody's ever done a sense. So that I never – oh, yeah, but the problem with that was that um, that didn't sur- – they didn't survive, right? So they had, uh, they had actually internal organ developmental issues. So the Boa Condas, they, they were yellow and they were – a boa cons- I can't remember whether it was a male boa to a female yeah. anaconda or the vice versa. I think it was maybe yellow anaconda male to a to a boa female. They looked really interesting. Um, there was another one yeah. that happened a, a bunch of years ago as well, which was a um, either a Colombian rainbow boa or Brazilian rainbow boa to a boa constrictor, uh, and it produced some interesting looking animals as well. Okay. But I would I would love to know. I'd love to. I'll have to do a little bit of digging because it's been long. It's been a number of months since that those were produced. Um, it would be interesting to see how they're doing because I've got um, I've got a I've got emerald tree emerald Amazon tree boa emerald tree boa hybrids, and um, they're doing great. You know, whereas in the, the history of those is that they always do really bad, um, and I've always recommended never doing it, and never buying them. But I, I got them pretty cheap, and just to see, I, I was expecting it to die and uh thriving so maybe um maybe if i can pick up a female a female doomerals I'll, I'll do it just for fun and i'll keep them all but um uh maybe i'll try it so if anybody has one that they don't want anymore or they want to they want to trade um hit me up don't kill me <laughs> i'll trade you one for an eastern Tanzania. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> but based on Dumeril's prices at the beginning of the year, maybe that would have been a good trade. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought they were pretty. I'm not going to try it. You should. I, I thought you were Eastern and Western. I know Heather, I think, bred them one time, Eastern and yeah. Western. Yeah. Did you see pictures of the babies? I, I, I haven't. I don't, I don't think I have. I'm curious as to how they look. There's a lot of variation. You know, or one you might think is Eastern, and the rest mm-hmm. look Western. Really? Did you know? Was it a was it an Eastern male to Western female? That I don't know. Okay. I think male, because maybe at the time she couldn't find an Eastern female. Okay. Uh huh. They yeah. tried it but for a while because the tides and everything in Madagascar. I thought Easterns would be floating over to Nozikumba, being with them, mm-hmm. but didn't look anything like that locality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've I've always wondered about you know range overlap and um, and when you might see some hybrids in, in naturally in the wild because hybrid zones are quite common for many species 
and they can be really broad. You know, people think of hybrid zones as being these little narrow things whenever two species come into contact. But the evolutionary history of hybrid zones, you know, you'll get that hybridization right at that point. But those hybrids also then spread and you get much more of a, a tailed out kind of range. So the hybrid zones can actually be really, really large and you can see the effects of that over a longer area. Um, so I'm curious yeah. as, to, as to how that looks on the island. Is that one of the reasons why we see so much variation on the island? I kind of wonder about great westerns. Uh-huh. That a possibly. Yeah. And it's one of those where I like you did to check the sheds. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wouldn't because I don't want to find out. But right. so John Barry has the eastern Sanzinia that came from the same litter as a pair I have. Mine are really green. His male is silver. This female almost looks like a Western, very brown. So I'm wondering if maybe somebody got some siblings years ago and thought, well, that's a Western. Mm-hmm. Bred it to another Western, but it's actually an Eastern, which created that gray phase. It's entirely now possible. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, so like, we're, you know, we're, would have yeah, where I'm not worried about that is that there's a strong potential for that on the island. You know, it's not like us taking two animals that are totally distinct and not going to come into contact with each other. You know, I think it's very likely that that all of these animals have some um, underlying element of Eastern and Western in them. It's just to what percentage? Hopefully very low. <laughs> we'll agree. never know. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep breeding greens to greens and mandarins to mandarins and we'll all be, we'll all be fine. Yeah. I, some of my Westerns come out very different looking. Mm-hmm. That could also be that the Westerns have a larger range. And as a result, they're likely to have, it'll be a larger population size, increased number of generations, increased number of individuals means more generations per year, more litters per year, and therefore more chances of mutation and therefore more chances of variation. So that's probably one of the reasons why we see that there. Yeah. And their westerns are so consistent. You know what they're mm-hmm. going to look like from the time they're born. And even in that litter of stillborns I got, I think I had five different phenotypes just in that one litter. So are you, uh, you're, you're, you're pairing Easterns and Westerns separately, obviously this year. Yeah. I don't, I don't try to mix them intentionally at all. Yeah. I've, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I've thought about it. Like, hey, what would happen? But I'm yeah, not going to no, go there. Yeah. Don't do it. But you are expecting, or you're hoping to produce Easterns and Westerns this year. Uh, mainly Easterns this year, given the Westerns yeah. break. Cool. And Keith, you've got yours paired then, or you're, you're pairing Easterns yeah. and Westerns? Yeah, you know, Paul and, and you and everybody kind of got me on the thought of next year definitely going a little longer before I started introductions. I may have done it again a little too early this year, but yeah, I got them paired and females are building uh, and, you know, looking on track, so we'll see how it goes. I got two girls that uh, I'm going to breed, so we'll see how it goes. Hopefully. Excellent. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I think you guys on the East Coast are probably ahead of us. And that's why I hate to tell anybody, you know, what I do, because if they're on the East Coast or the West Coast, it's going to be months different. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, well, the thing is that, you know, with these animals, they're not something that I you can pick up tomorrow and expect to produce the first year. You know, I think these animals really do need to get into that rhythm that your room is sitting at over multiple seasons uh, to really establish. And, and and indeed, you know, the east and the west is, is very different. Even with me moving from Oklahoma to, to Virginia, 
I've noticed a dramatic difference in the in the reproductive behaviors of my of my boas in general. Um, you know, where they would normally be shifted, you know, it's normally February, March before I even start to see breeding. And here we are in January and I'm seeing ovulations essentially or close to, close to ovulations. Just totally different yeah, be behaviors. Yeah. Really early for me. Mm-hmm. Anything in January. Yeah. Yeah, for me it's it was yeah, just way way out of whack. August and September is usually all my litters. Mm-hmm. Very good. So, Keith, do we have any other questions? Uh, I just know Paul wants to make a uh, pilgrimage to Madagascar at some point, right, Paul? I mean, that's what you're looking forward oh. to. I was, I was just curious on on you know if you're going to set that trip up, if you're if and what your goals would be if you did go there. Yeah, I want to go there. I don't want to go for a week or two because, you know, it's, what, 1,300 miles long. I kind of want to go and check all the, all the localities in the eastern range and try to find where that difference is at and then try to pinpoint what we might have here in captivity between yours, which are phenomenal looking, and some of mine that are darker. darker. So, yeah, I would like to see the variation in the wild and so see the overlap. Sanzania would be the focus, though. You'd be, you'd be that. Be your, your deal. That would be the animals you'd be looking at and trying to figure. Yeah, I think the doomerals are also similar enough that I wouldn't see a big difference. But Sanzania, I'd like to try to figure out. Yeah, because we we see like Warren mentioned when he was looking at pictures. So what might we be working with here? And should we try to? Take this darker phase and breed them together. The lighter green phase. Try to you know keep them somewhat locality specific in case down the road we find out. Yeah, this is the Suriname. This is the Guyana. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you got to get that going there, bud. When when are you going to do it? <laughs> yeah. You going with? Well, yeah. Uh, Rob, set that up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. I found iNaturalist tonight too, and uh, yeah, some some cool stuff there. I would say probably my guess would be on those eastern Tanzania, at least the first ones, it's going to be that national park just east of Antanarivo, right? Is uh, man, there's a huge cluster right there, and as ever with herp history stuff, like it's probably the most accessible, easy, you know, the easiest access, most accessible. That's probably where those are mostly coming from, at least on the early stuff. Right, you know, people want to put in the least uh, least output to get to make that possible, and that's what I'd imagine the early Easterns were from. Parks where everybody goes. Yeah. Then Patrick is Facebook. He lives there, does tours, posts a lot of cool. Stuff. I think everybody from the states that's been going has been hiring Patrick because I don't think you rent your own car there. You have to have a driver. Hmm. Which I don't like. I'd rather drive myself around. Yeah, right. Kind of go go with your guts telling you to go, right? Yeah, but it's a, it's such a backwards country. You watch YouTube videos where you have to get government approval to go to an illegal mine. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's an illegal mine, but you still have to get government approval to be there. That's crazy, right? It's a little different. 
Yeah. Well, and don't catch bubonic plague while you're there, right? Which is not totally stones. <laughs> I mean, we have it in the U.S., but uh, yeah, you know, that's not nothing, not for nothing, right? Yeah, there's also Malagasy leg rot. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bill Love did an article about it. I think he got it, didn't he, if I remember right? Yeah, he got it. So there's problems there. Yeah. If you read some books, you know, if they ever found them more, if they're an albino, the natives would kill it. Yeah, I've heard that. There's a lot of folklore over there. Yeah, interesting. Uh, do you have any more questions there, Warren, for uh, while we have them? I don't. I think that was uh, I think it was a really good, you know, in-depth dive into, into the boas of, of Madagascar. You know, at, whenever we talked about this originally, I thought we would focus mainly on Sanzinia, but I think given that Paul's got so much experience with all of the boas of Madagascar, I think, you know, there's some really interesting stories you're able to tell us. Um, I know that I'm going to leave my office here. I'm at my lab at the moment and I'm going to go home. And the first thing I'm going to do is walk in and see what my sons in here are doing. Cause I'm guaranteed they're sitting in that with their heads pointing down, waiting for a rodent, even though they both had last night. Yeah. Um, it just makes me wish they were older to start trying to breed them. And of yeah. course, I'm going to go into morph market and start looking at doomerals again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this could be really bad. Whenever we uh, were less frequent with putting this show together, there wasn't the desire to get stuff. But now, I, last month, and ending up with Guiana bows. This month, if I end up with doomerals, this is going to be really problematic. I, I yeah. think my wife might divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, before what before we do go, Paul, do you keep other? Do you keep anything else? Or are you purely a Madagascan? Boa guy. Oh, no, I, have, I have a little bit. Uh, Jamaican boas, Puerto Rican boas, Cuban boas. What else is in there? Uh, I'm Ford's boas right now. Got rid of all of my Dominicans. And maybe this That's is one it. of these things. It's like, you know, talking to Jeff Murray, he's really into the same kind of things. Do you keep tree boas? Do you keep any Corrales? No? Uh, just some Hortulanus. Okay. No Amazon or no emeralds. Okay. I did that 30 years ago. Learned yeah. my lesson. <laughs> yeah, emeralds are great. They can certainly break your heart. Yeah. Talking yeah. about, let me, let me give you one emerald story. Talking to my friend Rich Eiley, um, a couple, maybe a year ago. Um, well, I haven't heard that name in forever. Yeah, Rich is a great guy and he's doing really well. Um, it was he and I and Dave Barker were sharing a cabin out at, in New Mexico. And uh, I think I just had a litter of emeralds and I was showing him pictures. And he told me a story of whenever he first bred emeralds, he brought in, he bought like seven imported females and one male or two males and he put them together and every female produced. And he produced, I think he said something like 74 baby emeralds that year. Every single one of them fed and wow. he, sold, he sold 74 baby emeralds. It's like, oh my That's God. Good. Unreal. You know, just thinking back to the Keith a few minutes ago talking, you know, but those I, I still remember that picture of you holding up all of those sons in here. Yeah. And I thought it's just the same thing, you know, it's like uh you just that time that it just yeah, it's everything it favorite, just works. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. yeah, very good. Well I think it was Tom Widener that said the emeralds that shows are dead, they just don't know it yet. Yeah, well I think that's very, very true. Yeah. Emeralds are you know, wild caught are super sensitive animals. Captive bread are, are great, but wild caught Man, they are 
you know, just, you know, I, I mentioned uh, on the show last month that I had this, this trio of anaconda phase and just does so well, but all of a sudden each one of them in a different cage after the move, after they fed, same conditions are great. Each one developed respiratory issues and um, to the point where they were drooling. Um, and I just thought, wow, I'm going to lose these three anaconda phase after them doing so well. I bought the temperature, hit them all with Thailand 200, and a month later they're all feeding and just doing great again. Absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing. But I feel that if I did start taking them out and trying to work with them, bring them to a vet, I think that stress would have killed them. Right. I think stress just impacts wild-caught animals in a, in a way that we can't even think about. Um, and it can just knock them out in terms of trying to get them established and so on. But Paul, maybe, you know, given your experience with these other boas, maybe in the future we can bring you on again to talk about your experience with these, um, with Ford's boas and so on. It'd be kind of cool. There's not a huge number of people working with them. Yeah. That'd be cool. I don't want to feed the babies. (laughs) So, well, so they're, you know, John Barry and David and Ron have some here. I'm trying to do them. And the deal is if they have babies, I'm shipping that day. Oh man, you know some of these. I know little, there's not, not a lot of little lizards running around. So these insular boas can just drive you nuts. You know, I'm I had a litter of Trinidad tree boas in August, and not one of them. They don't want to strike, which is unlike the adults, because every adult that I've got, I've got a lot of them. Every adult wants to destroy you, uh, and they're right on target. These babies, they're so timid. They. You know, you tr- you put a hot rodent near them, it runs away. You put a cold rodent near it, it runs away. You leave it there, it runs away. I tried, you know, everyone talks about these button quail, no interest in those. You know, so I'm, I'm at the point where I'm assist feeding rodent tails, um, button quail thighs and mouse thighs. And tonight I've got a bunch of um, Reptilinx iguana sausages defrosting. And I'm going to, the very smallest ones, they're going to be rolled thin and assist fed to these um, baby Trinidad tree boas tonight just to maintain them. They all look fantastic. It's just to maintain them until they finally decide that they want to eat or until I can get some. Um, see, I don't really want to go with the live lizard route, the live animal route, because then it's going to have to be, you know, warming them and that can lead to enough issues yeah. as well. Why do I do this? I don't know. Dave. The first time I got the minikins, all I could get was pretty much adult anoles, mm-hmm. and they took them. It was amazing. I mean, these anoles were a third the size of the snake, and they yeah, took we've them. We, yeah we've seen um, in, in some of the, the earlier litters of Trinidad's that we had. Um, they've been very variable in how they established, but we've had some litters where babies went straight onto onto small mice, defrost small mice left in their cage overnight. And you would think that this thing was going to just burst open and they do fine. Yeah. I'm with Joe. I am that wouldn't feed and I kept trying these over and over. And finally, when I I gave up, I had fuzzy mice. I just threw them in there and they finally ate. And it looks like they would die from eating. (laughs) Unreal. Well, you know, if if it doesn't kill them, you know, that's uh, (laughs) that's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, any problems with a little bigger, but you know, Jamaicans. Yeah, they reviewed Pinky Mouse. Yeah, well, it's I've seen it with with Corallus as well. You know, people think that with Hortolana, 
and even emeralds um, that, you know, you got to give them small meals. And, and all of my babies I've started off on hopper mice, whether it's been a baby Amazon tree boa or, or a baby um, emerald tree boa. If it's not a small mouse, it's going to be a, a, like a, a very large rat, rat pink, much bigger than you would think they would cope with. And they, they, they have no issues with it at all. But whereas if I offer smaller meals, they just don't look at it. They're not interested. Yeah. yeah. You think they pick something, but yeah, not where they're cool. Well, very cool, Paul. We've been on, we've bothered you for about two and a half hours. And, and if I recall, oh. if I recall yeah. correctly, before you said you were struggling for an hour, I think it was to talk to us. So I think, uh, I think we've milked oh, you quite yeah. a bit for, for this evening. And I really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, and I think it would be great to get no, you no back problem. on again in the future to talk about other boas, given your um, your long history and experience with them. That could be fun. Keith knows a little bit more now. Yeah. <laughs> My morph history. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some good conversations with that. Been down that road before. Mm-hmm. I still like leopard boas. They should be more popular. Uh, I produce a lot of those every year. Your T-positive yeah. leopards, I think you produce. I, 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 yeah, so that's, that's they're hybrids. Um, they're Sigma Imperator, but I've got pure anarthristic leopards. So I, in my collection in 2002, um, from my Sonorans, um, anarthristics popped up. And over time, we've bred them into leopards. So we've got um, anarthristic leopards, which are really cool because they're really dark, um, but they're just gray, white, and black. Uh, this year, you know, I've got, a, I've got some anarthristic leopard breeding hypomelanistic leopards so hopefully down the line we'll produce some ghost leopards but i love leopard boas um i love sonoran boas in general but leopard boas are are, are really fun so yeah i, I uh yeah, i like I, I, yeah well if you're like looking ever look, if you're ever looking for any more let me know <clears throat> all right i guess uh we'll close out the show then um i want to thank paul uh as warren did for coming on it was definitely an enjoyable show and can't wait to have you back on. So thanks for listening to Boas, Boas, Boas with Warren, Rob, and myself. Please check out the NPR Networks on YouTube channel and the uh, website moralitypythonradio.com. You can follow us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast app you may be using. Uh, we hope you listen to us next month. Uh, we're looking to have Dennis McNamara on, I believe. Right, Warren? That's great. I've been chatting to Dennis, and he has... He has agreed, he has approved, um, and we're going to talk about his experiences keeping boas in the zoo kind of environment mm-hmm. and also his own experience because he, he keeps some incredible Amazon tree boas and some other things amongst the lots of other animals. I'm sure we'll end up talking about other stuff that he keeps, but uh, um, as Keith knows, Dennis is a, is a great person, so I'm looking forward to talking with him more um, next month. Uh, So until then, enjoy your animals and follow your passions, everyone. Thank you.